When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and today is our fifth and final installment in our study of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. I hope that this book has come to life for you. I hope that you've fallen in love with Peter and with Paul, with Timothy, with Lydia, with Apollos. I hope that you've oh, scratched your head at the, at the dealings of the silversmiths of Ephesus. I, I hope, especially if there's anybody out there named Eutychus, I hope you've taken a good nap, or at least get out from the third story window because we have a lot to cover this week and it's really important material. We have already seen the three missionary journeys of Paul, but today will be his final journey and he'll make it into a missionary one, though it's never called that. He will, he will teach along the way, but this is Paul's journey to Rome and eventually his martyrdom. I don't know what it would feel like to know that the end is approaching to think that this is my last journey and would I drag my feet? Would I try to come up with other things to do to postpone the inevitable? But in Paul's case, as we said of Jesus, he set his face steadfastly to go toward the final destination. And we'll see that as he arrives at Rome today. Now, last week, if you recall, we ended on a cliffhanger, the ultimate one. I, I've said before that chapter headings are wonderful things to help us understand if we're trying to skim over things or get a quick synopsis of what we're studying. But unfortunately, because they didn't exist in the original text as written by the author, they can sometimes cut up the story or interrupt it in ways that were not intended. And that was definitely true last week. When we ended Acts chapter 21, it ended with a comma, not a period. And it ended with the word saying... And so that comma would then be followed by quotation marks as Paul begins this discourse. And remember, it's a discourse in his own self-defense. I mean, we're about to start chapter 22, verse 1, which says, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. Oh, sounds great. Now, he's just opening his mouth and beginning to, to speak to them. But now, if we just, if we just woke up, and having passed through the veil from last week's study, if you just open Acts 22 and dive into verse 1, you miss the drama of this discourse. You forget that Paul has been this close from being torn limb from limb, that the Roman soldiers had to rush down into the mob that was intent on mob violence, that had intended to beat Paul to death. And the only reason they stopped was because the, the soldiers came to break up the fight. Uh, for them to drag Paul away from his attackers, his would-be murderers, and bring, them up, bring him up the steps of the Antonia Fortress to the point that he couldn't hold himself upright, that it took four soldiers to carry this limp, almost lifeless body up the stairs with them. When Paul polit politely asked the Roman, the chief captain, can I speak to you? 
and he did it in Greek, which caught the attention of the, the chief captain. They discussed their citizenship, and then Paul asked for one final favor, can I speak to my attackers? And that would be gutsy in and of itself, uh, but to, to turn around and then begin to address them in Hebrew now, so we've shifted from Greek to, to capture the attention of one audience. He's going to now turn to Hebrew to hold the attention of another. Paul oh, is as brave as he is ingenious. And for him to, to call their attention, to beckon with the hand, it said at the end of chapter 21, and then to open his bloodied mouth and begin to speak to the, the people that want him silenced forever. What's he possibly going to say? Well, that's the amazing thing about chapter 22. If you had one last chance to defend yourself, how would you do it? Well, let's see Paul. Acts chapter 22, verse 1, with hand outstretched, with the, the crowd beginning to quiet, men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. Now, the fact that he begins with men, brethren, and fathers, I can't help but hear Mark Antony in the beautiful Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And think about Shakespeare. What is he, why is he putting those words in Antony's mouth? Well, it's getting Antony on the side of his hearers. Friends, we're, we're on the same, the same side here. I, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. I mean, honestly, what Antony had done, it's one of the most ingenious speeches in all of Shakespeare, as far as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned. To start with people and get on their side, but then to and, and act as if he agrees with them. That what Brutus had done was, was not, not wrong in the least, and you wanted him to do it, or you're applauding him for doing it, and hey, I'm on your side. Friends, fellow Romans, fellow countrymen, and now on their side proving that he sees what they see and shares their perspective, he's then able to shift their perspective by helping them see what they're not seeing, by pointing out some things that Brutus and, and Caesar, things about them that would help the, his audience soften their heart towards Caesar, change their views towards Brutus. It's an ingenious discourse, and Paul's is as well. He begins with that same kind of, I'm on your side. It's not just men, accusers, and would-be murderers. No, that immediately puts you in an oppositional kind of stance. It's not even men, people of Israel, and elders of Jerusalem, because that's who he's addressing. Men of Israel, no, he calls them brethren. And elders of Jerusalem, no, he calls them fathers. This is a family feud going on within the family. Paul, I'm one of you. Please understand. And so now that he's called their attention and let them know I'm here to defend myself, please listen to my defense. Verse 2 and 3, it begins. Now first, Luke includes in parentheses, when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. The fact that he would speak to them in the ancestral language. Wow, this man really is one of us. He's speaking in the language of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's speaking in the language of Scripture. Here, Paul is showing his religious identity, not just his cultural identity. And he saith, 
I am verily a man which am a Jew, just like you, brethren and fathers. I was born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. And so, yes, you might think of me an, an, as an outsider. I grew up in Asia Minor. Well, at least I was born there. Yet, I was brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. You see what he's doing? I'm one of you. True, I wasn't born here, but I was raised here spiritually. Remember when we studied Acts chapter 5? And everyone was up in arms over Peter and John and ready to tear them limb from limb. And, and a leading Pharisee in the, in the city tried to calm the crowd, or at least the leaders of the crowd, and said to them, there's all kinds of, our history is full of nobodies that thought they were somebodies. And their movements fizzled out under the weight of their own falsehood. We don't have to do anything here. In fact, we shouldn't do anything here. Because if this is a man-made movement, we don't have to fight it. And if this is God-inspired, then we can't fight it. Lest we find ourselves fighting against God. Do you remember that conversation? And, and that was effective. The leaders realized, you know, he's right. Well, who's he? It's Gamaliel, the same person that Paul is calling to his own defense. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 5, verse 34, Gamaliel is described this way. One in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people. So everybody knows this guy. They know how zealous of the law he was, just like his star pupil, Saul of Tarsus. Paul is pulling out the credentials and helping his audience see, I'm just like you. In fact, in some way, you're, you're tearing, wanting to tear me apart because I'm not sufficiently Jewish. I'm too Christian. Oh, I'm more Jewish than you are. Again, we've talked about this before. If Judaism was to Christianity as traditional Christianity is to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, then when people, thankfully they don't beat us physically anymore, but when they beat our reputation to pulp, when they say that, oh, Mormons aren't Christians, here's Paul's chance, or ours, to say, oh, we're as Christian as they come. Paul is, is saying that. I, the perfect manner of the law of our fathers, I was all in. I'm on your side. I saw from your perspective. I know where you're coming from because I came from the same spot. In verse 4, I persecuted this way. And remember, we should capitalize way because that's what the Christian church was first known as. So I persecuted this way unto the death. Think back to Stephen's martyrdom in chapter 7. And there's Paul as the coat holder. So nobody gets any blood on their garments. There he is consenting unto death. He goes on, binding and delivering into prisons, both men and women. I was no respecter of victims, believe me, as also the high priest doth bear me witness. So not only will Gamaliel back me up for my Jewish credentials, but the high priest will bear me witness that I was as zealous, toward, not just in defending the law, but in attacking the way. I was in the forefront of all of this. Ask the high priest, ask all the estates of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus, to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. 
We know this story already because we studied it in chapter 9. But for this Jewish, I mean, it's been years. This is, it, it's been decades since Jesus was killed in, in Jerusalem. But it's been years since Paul had his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He's been on mission number one, two and a half years, give or take. Mission number two, where he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half and also went to a bunch of other places. Yeah, mission number three, where he was gone for a considerable length of time, preaching, teaching, baptizing, leading the church. Now he's back in Jerusalem for his final time. And he's reminding them of, these, of this initial experience. His conversion experience is always fresh on his mind. We, we'll see him use it in self-defense several times in this week's lesson. And so pay close attention to the testimony that he bears here. Here, it's, it all begins with this, I was on the attack. I was on your side and against the Christians. I was as opposed to this heresy as you all are. And just as violent, in some ways, he's saying to them, I would have done to me exactly what you're doing to me. So believe me. In some ways, it's something Joseph Smith had said. If I hadn't had the experiences I've had, then I wouldn't believe my story either. So I don't blame anyone for looking at me skeptically. Here's Paul. I don't blame you as I defend myself. If anything, if I do blame you, it's because I blame myself. I changed because I saw the light. And now the question is, will you? I will not hold you accountable, responsible for light you have not yet seen. But men and brethren and fathers, if you'll lend me your ears, I will open your eyes. If I can be your Ananias and figuratively lay my hands upon you so that the scales of darkness drop from your eyes, if I can say to you in some way, brethren and fathers, why persecutest thou me? For I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, whom thou persecutest. And it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It's that sense of compassion, not of, of anger or offense, that Paul is feeling as he approaches his would-be attackers. It's hard for you. And it could be so much easier if you opened your eyes to the truth so that truth could set you free. By the way, in our own experiences with people, especially with people that we've, with whom we don't see eye to eye, if there's someone in your life that has left the church and is now attacking it, please pay attention to how Paul is trying to change hearts. Whether or not he, he is successful, we will see. And whether or not you will be successful in the short term of changing the heart of this person, that's yet to be seen as well. But if you ever hope to change their heart, you better change yours first. If you want them to see your perspective, you have to get to a point where you can see theirs. That's why so often when I'm meeting with somebody that's angry and or has difficult questions and is thinking of leaving the church or threatening to, often they'll say, I just need 15 minutes. If you can just answer this question, we'll be done. I said, no, 
The question is not some outside thing. It's internal. Otherwise, it wouldn't be causing you so much angst. And so I need to know the whole story. I need to know you and how you were raised and your background and how you feel about these things and how you once felt and why you're planning on making this change. And this is going to take two hours probably because I need to know you. So among other things, I can empathize with you, that I can see where you're coming from, that I can stop the temptation of accusing you and approaching you as an enemy. Because if I do, then you'll feel fully justified in responding to me as an enemy as well. We can't have that. And so, again, if I can come to an understanding in some way, and again, that's why I love proving contraries. Because they have right on their side. They are holding to a side of the contrary. Usually it's an overcorrection from the other side that they were holding on to. The side that most of us are still holding on to. And so if I can prove that contrary, if I can see the virtue on the side they've chosen, again, by eliminating its connection with the other side, that virtue has or will already become a vice. Or at least has that potential. And so I've got to be careful with that. But I'm just the opposite. My virtue has a vice potential too, if it's not connected to the other side. So it's not just a matter of, please sit down so I can help you. But please, can we sit down together so we can help each other? Help me see what I'm not seeing. And then I'll try my best to help you see what you might not be seeing. If I can come around to your side, put my arm around you, and look at what you're seeing from your perspective, chances are I'll be able to validate the experience you've had and empathize with the emotions you're now feeling. I will probably not agree with your interpretation, but I will see where you're coming from as far as what you've been through. And once that happens, then perhaps I can also point out, yes, I see what you see, but you see off in the distance a few other things that might broaden your perspective, that you are right, but only half right. Just like, just like so many people that you are struggling with are right, but only half right also. It's just the opposite half. Make sense? I love what Paul is doing here. He is such a masterful example of not accusing his accusers, because then they'll just feel justified, of, of being open to their side of the story. Because he, at, at one point in his life, that was his full story. So, yes... I'm not just trying to buddy up and get on your, on your good side. I'm trying to prove that I know you have a good side and that you feel justified in what you've been doing to me. I felt exactly the same. But here's where things changed for me. And here, maybe, is where things will change for you. Verse 6, It came to pass that as I made my journey, and was come nigh unto Damascus, was almost there. I was about to perform my work of opposition, just like you were about to, to complete yours against me. But about noon, that moment of greatest light, when the light finally dawned on me, I hope it's noon for you, at that moment, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, and that is a very Israelite name, as you all know. First king of united Israel. And I'm trying to unite us still behind the king of kings, who I now know is Jesus. 
Now, as he tells his story, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I answered, who art thou, Lord? See, I didn't know who he was either. Just like you, I was sinning in ignorance, just as you are. I don't blame you. But he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And there's a mic drop. I mean, not just for Paul in the moment, but for the people as, as Paul tells his story. He wanted them to have the same surprise that he did. He wanted them to experience the same shock and awe. Jaw drop, bulging eyes, this is, this is you? This heavenly messenger that I cannot deny is far above me. Now I know your identity. I see your glory, but now I know who, who this glorious being is. My brethren and fathers, if only you knew who Jesus was. He walked among us several decades ago. Are some of you old-timers remembering that? Go home and ask your fathers. Find out what they knew of Jesus. I was operating under the same false assumptions that they were. But I came to know Jesus for who he really is. And this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He's the King of Kings. He's the Messiah we've all been waiting for. He brought a kingdom unlike the kingdom we had come to expect. He was not the military Messiah we'd been banking on. But he freed us from the only things that are really worth fearing. And that's sin and death. I have no fear of sin because Christ has washed my sins away. And I have no fear of death because Jesus has conquered it. Why do you think I'm facing, I'm turning around and facing you when I can barely stand on my own two feet? It's the Lord of life that is empowering me. He's the one I persecuted. He's the one that you are persecuting. But I changed and so can you. He continues his story in verse 9. They that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. When we read the story back in Acts chapter 9, by the way, it had those reversed. It said that the other man heard the voice but didn't see anything. But remember even then the JST corrected that to fit this description instead? I think it's fascinating to see but not hear, which means they recognized something. His fellow persecutors, they saw something. They were privy to the vision, but they didn't know the identity of this heavenly messenger. They didn't hear the voice. You Jews, have you seen something? You saw changes. You saw the kinds of things that Jesus of Nazareth did. But were your ears open to hear the still small voice bear witness of his true identity? No. So let me... Let me fill in your blanks. Let me tell you the rest of the story. So Paul goes on, I said, what shall I do, Lord? And I'm hoping that you will ask me the same question. Do you remember when Peter bore witness of the risen Lord and the, his Jewish audience had their hearts pricked and they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, here's Paul asking the Lord that. What shall I do? Please, my fellow brethren and fathers, ask me that question. I know the answer. In my own experience, when I asked, what shall I do? The Lord said unto me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. 
And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. What a fitting description of those who are blind to the truth of Christ. What a fitting description of Paul's own audience. He's giving them the benefit of the doubt, doubts which he shared, and letting them know that it was that light that blinded me. But it was also that light that gave me my sight. If to this point you have been blind to the glory of Jesus, then come and arise. Step into your full spiritual potential. Rise from the dust all around you and become true disciples. Eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to feel. Be changed by him, as was I. Now in Paul's case, verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, so he was just like my master Gamaliel, he's just like you, he was devout, he focused on the law, but he also saw its fulfillment in Jesus. So this devout Ananias, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. So even though he was a quote-unquote Christian, the Jews had nothing to complain about. He was of good report among them. He came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him. Ananias saw me as a brother. Can't you? He gave me my sight. Can I pass it forward? Oh, any friend of Ananias is a friend of the Jews. The Jews saw him as one of their own, though he saw more than they did. And if you'll do the same for me, then I can be your Ananias. Verse 14, Ananias said, The God of our fathers hath chosen me. And speaking of credentials, let that one sink down into the ears of Paul's hearers. I have been chosen by the God of our fathers. And this is what I've been chosen for. That thou shouldest know his will and see that just one. And shouldst hear the voice of his mouth. Jesus of Nazareth, that is. He is that just one. He is the Messiah. I saw him. I heard his voice. I am a witness of his resurrection. There's apostolic credentials there. And then Ananias said to Paul, For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Can you see what Paul is doing? He's dropping hints left and right throughout his whole self-defense. It's less a defense of self and more an invitation of others to come, to come and see. He, men and brethren, what shall we do? He's hoping they'll ask, and he's already giving them the answer. What are you standing around for? This is like Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. What, what's hindering me from being baptized? What is stopping me from making this dramatic change? And for these Jews, will you stop tarrying in your ignorance and arise and be baptized and wash away your sins? Come and call upon the name of the Lord. He is waiting with arms outstretched. So verse 17, it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, oh, oh yeah, I see, I'm telling my story. I forgot, forgot. Sometimes I think I'm telling yours. At least I, ho I hope I am. But let me get back to mine. 
when I was coming into Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, and here we are, I'm back to where this all began, in the holy city, at the holy place, doing a holy act. These are all signs of devotion. I'm one of you, a devout Jew. But as I prayed in the temple years and years ago here in Jerusalem, I was in a trance. Paul was a visionary man after all. And I saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And the me at the end helps us see the identity of this heavenly messenger. Jesus appearing to Paul once again at the house of the Lord itself, the temple in Jerusalem. We didn't see that vision back in chapter 9. But at some point when Paul was there, the Lord joined him. And there at that site of greatest holiness, the just one, holiness himself, appeared and let Paul know they will not receive thy testimony. And yet what's he doing? Giving them every possible chance. It's interesting that in light of this realization, again, we don't know exactly when in Paul's ministry this happened, but it, if it was early on and still mission number one, mission number two, mission number three, remember everywhere he went, what does he do? He goes straight to the synagogue and starts preaching to the Jews. He starts among them. He still sees them as brethren and fathers and wants to give them every opportunity, despite the fact that he knows from Jesus. And you'd think you'd trust that source. He does. But you'd think that would remove any hope that any Jewish listener would have an open enough heart to respond to the call to change. They will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And yet for Paul to say, to hope against hope, to try. That may be true collectively. I will not help the entire house of Israel recognize that their king has come. But if there is an Apollos here or there, if there's an Aquila or Priscilla, if, if there's a Justice or a Crispus, if, if there are Jews somewhere with ears to hear, then who am I to pass judgment before I even give them a chance to respond? In some ways, this is like Nephi coming down the mountain after having seen in vision the future of his civilization, namely that his descendants would fall prey to the descendants of his brothers, Laman and Lemuel. And what does he do when he comes down? He approaches Laman and Lemuel and tries anyway. If I can turn away from the future that I've been shown, even though it's been shown me by God. Paul's faith is astounding to me. His effort, his work, his faith, everything he's doing here. Now in verse 19, he continues his own story. And again, dropping hints at the story he hopes that his brethren and fathers will live into as well. I said, in response to this heavenly vision, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. 
I wonder if that conversation, again, this is a conversation we didn't know about before. I'm so grateful that he's giving this self-defense with an expanded account of his conversion. Because here, it almost feels like he's pleading with the Lord to give Judaism one more chance. And that let me be the one through whom you give them that chance. Because I know where they're coming from. I was just like them, and yet you didn't give up hope on me. Remember Ananias was concerned? Like, uh-oh, I've heard about this guy. Remember the other Jewish Christians were concerned? Like, oh, we've really heard about this guy. Public enemy number one. And now he claims to be one of us? I am. I spent the rest of my life proving that I am truly converted. Despite those who had given up on me, Father, or Lord, don't give up on your people. This, in some ways, is like the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob 5, when the servant, when the Lord of the vineyard comes and says, that's it, we've given them all the chance they need, and now we're just going to cut bait, we're going to cut down the trees, we're going to burn the, the vineyard. And the, it's the servant that says, please, can we keep on trying? A little more digging, a little more dunging, a little more watering, a little more weeding. Please just, I still have hope. And I get a sense in Paul's response to the Lord in this vision. He's not telling Jesus anything he doesn't already know. I think he, what he's saying is, I know where they're coming from. I was just like them. Paul, in some ways, is the embodiment of the Jewish people. Persecuting Christians just like they're now persecuting Paul, consenting to, de to their death. I understand Stephen's history lesson. In some ways, Paul is culminating at the same point. He's letting the... In fact, this is interesting. Remember how Paul finishes? Excuse me, how Stephen finishes? He gives this whole amazing lesson, and here's Abraham, and here's uh, Israel, and here's Joseph of Egypt, and here's Moses, and all these, these ancient worthies, all of whom are pointing to Jesus symbolically. He's been teaching Jesus all the way through Israelite history. But at the very end, the gotcha statement at the end of, of Acts chapter 7 is when Stephen says, and just like your forefathers rejected Moses, for example, you are rejecting Jesus. And you're no different than they are. And it's that gotcha. It's that full reveal. And they are up in arms, ready to stone him. In some ways, by telling his own backstory, Paul is calling out his audience because they were just like him, beating in every synagogue those that believe on him. And what had they just done to Paul? Beat him, not at any old synagogue, in synagogue, at the temple itself. Jesus himself was ready to give up on you, at least in this vision. I wasn't. Of course, Jesus isn't going to give up on anyone. But the command there was depart from Jerusalem, basically from Judaism, because I am sending you to the Gentiles. And again, those are fighting words for this Jewish audience. Not just feeling themselves rejected in some way, but then putting the Gentiles forward in their place. Oh, no, no, no. That is far beneath them. Well, let's see how they respond. Verse 22. They gave him audience unto this word, or better translation, until this word. In other words, they've been listening with bated breath the whole time. As soon as he tried to you know, calm them, and he's beckoning with their hand and just silencing the crowd. When he starts speaking in Hebrew, and then kind of the sound waves spread across the Temple Mount, and they, it's 
picking up, it's registering in the, in the Jewish ear. Wait a minute, he's speaking our language? Remember the Roman centurion is thinking, aren't you that Egyptian guy? And they're thinking, aren't you some Gentile rabble-rouser that's bringing uncircumcised Gentiles into the temple? Wait a minute, you're speaking scripture language. You're speaking our language. Who are you? And they, they lend him their ears. The eyes aren't yet fully open, but the ears fully are. And they're hanging on every word, giving him audience until that word. And what was the last word? Gentiles. Wait, wait, wait. You're turning... God is turning from Jew to Gentile? You are leaving us, the chosen people, in the dust? And you're going to go take the covenant to the uncircumcised? Oh, no wonder they're only... They went from open ear to plugging them. How dare you say that you're going to go bless the widow of Zarephath when there's plenty of widows here? How dare you say you're going to go heal Naaman the Syrian when there's plenty of lepers in town? Oh, as Jesus went around popping the bubble of the Jews' sense of self-importance, Paul just conveyed that same thing, and, and they're done listening. Okay, they gave him audience unto this word, and then they lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. So not just out of our presence, but off the earth's surface. Let's finish beating him to death. For it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. Paul, this didn't go as you might have hoped. Their hearts were not pricked. Their hearts were cut, showing the hardness of those hearts. They weren't soft enough to desire a change. And so, no, it's not conversion like Peter saw. It's condemnation like Stephen saw. And... The wicked take the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. And these Jews were cut to the core. But it's interesting what they do when they cast off their clothes. Remember they had done that at Stephen's martyrdom and cast them at the feet of of Paul, of Saul at the time. Here they're casting off their clothing. They're throwing dirt in the air. To me, as I was pondering this, usually when you are feeling godly sorrow, when it is this truly righteous indignation at your own sins or the sins of someone else, typically you rend your garments, you tear them, and then you put dust and ashes upon your head. You sit there in the dirt in the ultimate posture of of penitence, of contrition, broken heart, contrite spirit right there. I wonder about these Jews. How do I have to rend my garments? Because that's some good clothing there. Why don't I just cast them off instead? Then I can pick them up and dust them off and I'll be fine. And speaking of dust, rather than put it on my head, uh, how about if I just throw it into the air? Is that good enough? It's all, I, I, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. But I wonder if this is almost a, a counterfeit show of godly sorrow. That it's indignation, all right, but it's not righteous indignation. 
And so they're kind of going through these motions and, oh, my clothing, don't tear it, but lay it aside. And the dust, don't, don't get any on me, but there it is in the air. But they're up in arms to the point that the soldiers once again are concerned for the, the safety of their prisoner. But notice it's not just let's keep them from the crowd. Let's try to figure out why are they so angry? And we're going to examine you by scourging. So we're going to torture you into a confession. They must know something about you that you're not saying. So let's get you to talk. And just like Pilate put Jesus through the indignity and agony of a scourging, Paul had already, had, had already been scourged before in his life as well. But to have it happen again, to think I'm about to go through that cat of nine tails, those stripes across the back, will I even survive it after such a beating? And I have to survive it because I have to go to Rome. My final testimony is not here, it's there. It's going from Jewish capital to Gentile capital. And Jesus had told me in this very spot years ago to depart and go preach to the Gentiles. I, I must still do that. So how am I going to get out of this one? Well, verse 25. As they bound him with thongs, in other words, leather straps, they're tying him up, ready to stretch him out so that they can begin whipping. Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? I mean, this is right at the moment where he's about to be scourged. And like I said, having been beaten within an inch of his life, scourging might finish the process. And yet, what's his innocent question? Remember when he politely turned to the chief captain? Can I have a word, your honor? And here, oh, just quick question for you as you're strapping me up, as you're stretching me out. That's actually the way, it, the, the language is softer in the King James. They bound him with thongs. In the NIV, the New International Version, as they stretched him out to flog him or the English Standard Version, when they had stretched him out for the whips, he's about to suffer. And just this question, is this what you normally do to Roman citizens, you Roman soldier? Are you going to scourge a Roman, not just a Roman, but an uncondemned one? Because there's been no proof of any guilt within me. Now, you want to talk about pulling out the get-out-of-jail card right at the, at the final second. That's what's happening here. You remember back in Acts chapter 16 when he's been scourged already? He's been thrown into the prison. This is the story of the jailer that just realizes you're on the right side of the bars. I'm on the wrong side. Remember that? Amazing story. But when the jailer finds out that they're going to free you and he tells Paul, you're free to go. And Paul's like, no, I've been free the whole time, but I'm definitely not going to give them the get-out-of-jail card by me taking their get-out-of-jail card. In other words, they're, they're trying to wash their hands of their responsibility when, for having scourged and imprisoned a Roman citizen. So, no, no, no. You go back and tell those 
Roman leaders, what they've done to a fellow Roman. And that's when they're kind of freaking out, like, oh no, what have we done? And they're, they're backpedaling, tail between the legs. Well, here it's something similar. Citizenship comes with certain protections and certain privileges. And Paul is, is pulling out his passport. Do you know what you've done and to whom? Now, verse 26, when the centurion heard that, oh no, he went and told the chief captain saying, take heed what thou doest. Oh, be careful about anything you do from this moment on, for this man is a Roman. And that's all that the chief captain needed to hear. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, tell me, art thou a Roman? Is this, is this rumor true? Or are you just throwing something out in order to postpone the inevitable? Are you really a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yea. And the chief captain answered, Oh, with a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was freeborn. Like I said, if Roman citizenship came with great privileges, it could also come at great cost. If you weren't born a citizen, then evidently you could purchase that citizenship. And that's what this chief captain had done. He wasn't a true Roman after all. But he paid the price because he saw the value of the privilege and the protection. In some ways, in this brief exchange, the chief captain realizes, Paul outranks me. He's more Roman than I am. And we came this close to scourging an uncondemned citizen. That would have been our heads on the chopping block. So verse 29 Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. And afraid for just binding him, imagine the consequences if they'd actually scourged him. So, whew, so glad you stopped us in time. Then on the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, In other words, the chief captain, he's so overcome with curiosity, he's got to know why the Jews are so angry. And okay, torture is not an option. I I can't scourge a confession out of you. But what, what can I do instead? He loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And there the chapter ends, but not the story. Because what we see here is the Roman uh, centurion, or the chief captain, realizing, I cannot beat a confession out of him. Can the Jewish Sanhedrin mm, draw a confession out of him? They're the ones that are so intent on killing Paul themselves, taking matters into their own hands. Surely they must know what the accusation is. Uh, Let me turn it over to them then. Not for more physical violence. He's uncondemned. That's the problem. It's not a problem to to execute anyone, including a Roman citizen. We just have to have the proof that, that they deserve to die. I don't see any proof. I don't have any proof. I can't get any proof. But maybe these Jews that are so angry with him can provide the accusation. We'll then take it from there. So, chapter 23, we see the questioning begin. He starts among Jewish authorities. He'll end among Roman authorities all over again. But in verse 1, Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren. So here we are once again. Brothers in the faith. Seed of Abraham. 
stock of Israel, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I am not nursing a troubled mind here. I've, my conscience is clear as a summer morning. Void of offense toward God and toward all men. Right? He proclaims this. I'm innocent of any wrongdoing. And yet, what's the response? The high priest Ananias. Interesting name. This is not the Ananias that blessed Paul. Far from it. This is not Ananias that helped Paul gain his sight. It's rather an Ananias who is completely blind to the truth. This is a high priest Ananias. We knew about Caiaphas and Annas during Christ's mock trials. Well, here we now have an Ananias in the mock trial of Paul. And what does he do as soon as he hears it? You've had good conscience before God? Well, I have no conscience. And so I'm not going to feel bad at all for, here's the line, commanding them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. How dare you open your mouth in self-defense? Let me close it with a slap across the face. Then verse 3, Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. And those are fighting words. I mean, if you're going to fight me anyway, I might as well give you a reason to. I'll, I'll earn that slap in the face. Whited wall is about as close as Paul ever gets to what Jesus had said about those scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites in his day, that they were whited sepulchers. On the outside, you look clean and sparkling, but on the inside, you're nothing but dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Well, if it's a whited wall, here you are trying to defend the house of Israel. Oh, there's probably bricks missing. It's probably crumbling with untempered mortar, to use Ezekiel's phrase. But you've whitewashed it. And that's all you are, you supposed high priest. So go ahead, smite me. And God will smite you. It's almost like a Abinadi telling the, the wicked priests of Noah, you, whatever you do to me, God will do back to you. So God smite thee. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and yet commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? How's that for hypocrisy, your honor? To break the law while supposedly defending it? Come on. Well, they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? And yes, he may have been a high priest, but he certainly did not belong to God. God wouldn't have claimed him at all. But then Paul's reaction to that is fascinating. Then said Paul, Oh, I, I, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And with that, he just quoted Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. A commandment in the law to honor those called to enforce the law. Don't speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Paul knows that. He's quoting scripture, perhaps, to also get on his audience's side. This is the Sanhedrin. They know their scriptures. Here they are trying to defend the law. Well, let me quote the law in my own defense. Actually, even in your defense. So sorry, I seem to have broken that law. I didn't know you were the high priest. So is he trying to get on their good side by apologizing for being on their bad side? and quoting the law that he didn't realize he had broken. Interesting. Again, Paul, ingenious. I've got to give him the benefit of the doubt on all of these things. This is a chance for me, for me to bring in Scripture in hopes that they'll realize, oh, he really does know our stuff and sides with our stuff. And maybe this guy's a Jew after all, though he espouses the way. Now, this is a confusing passage. Is Paul being bad cop, good cop? 
And he started bad cop, oh, you whited wall, and he shifts to good cop, like, oh, please forgive me, your honor. I didn't realize who you were. Did he not realize who he was? Some scholars have wondered about Paul's eyesight and use this as one example of maybe he's just not seeing things clearly. Sorry, I couldn't, I made out the shape, but I couldn't make out the insignia. I didn't realize you were high priest. Others, oh, he probably knew, but he's, again, trying to use the law to get people on his own side. Or is this a matter of, I didn't realize that it was the high priest making the commandment and then some subordinate, because it was a subordinate that slapped him across the face. So I, I'm like, I, I didn't mean to call you the whited wall, oh, oh high priest. I was speaking to this subordinate. Oh, there's all kinds of possibilities here. But to see that this moment, how is Paul going to get out of this? He's in trouble. He knows it. But then he sees an opening. Verse 6. But when Paul perceived, and that, that describes him well, he's perceptive, he's observant, he's a discerning man. And when he perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, like, hmm, this Sanhedrin is not all cut from the same cloth. There is a dividing line. I mean, the real line is them against me. But there's also this line with, within them, of them against them. I wonder if I could oh, take advantage of that division to help overcome this division. So once he realized, that's right, there's some Sadducees here, some Pharisees here. He cried out in the council, men and brethren. There it is again, brethren, I'm one of you. In fact, I'm, I'm more like half of you than the other half. I am a Pharisee the son of a Pharisee. Remember, he'd already said, I was raised at the foot of Gamaliel, who was a well-known Pharisee, zealous of the law. So, fellow Pharisees, I'm not just one of you Israelites, I'm really one of you Pharisees. And then he pulls out the ultimate trump card. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. That's really the, the, the critical point here. I have borne witness of the resurrection of Jesus. I am a witness of that resurrection myself. And that's what I am being condemned for. That's why I'm being attacked, because I'm bearing witness of the resurrection. Now, he knows exactly what he's doing. Because when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. You see what Paul's doing here? He's trying a new strategy. Maybe I can pit enemies against each other, and then I can kind of sneak off safely into the shadows as they start beating up on each other instead of beating up on me. Sounds great. It's almost like somebody being uh, called before Congress, and as everybody's ganging up on them, Suddenly, they, they show their own political party lines. And then pretty soon, if the person says they're a Democrat or the person says they're a Republican, then their party rushes to their defense and the other side's up in arms against the opposite party. See what Paul is doing? That's why it's so genius. It's true. It's, this is all true. This does revolve around the resurrection. But by bringing that up and forcing the issue upon them, the only reason people are attacking me is because I believe in the resurrection, just like you Pharisees do. I saw in this trance and in this vision an angel 
that was more than an angel, but a spirit. And those are all things you Pharisees also agree about, but not the Sadducees. Remember, we talked about this in our discussion of marriage in the Gospels, when it's the Sadducees asking Jesus about eternal marriage or marriage in the resurrection, when they don't believe in the resurrection at all. And so, again, ingenious Paul, ooh, let me throw out the crux of the issue and get them fighting each other. At least I'll have the Pharisees on my side as far as that doctrine is concerned. And now he does. Now, verse 9, there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, so they're fighting, saying, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Again, that's the exact earlier advice of Gamaliel, also a Pharisee. Paul's strategy totally worked. He couldn't get everyone on his side, but he could get some on his side. And he does it by appealing to the common beliefs he shares with the Pharisees. Amazing. Now, when there arose a great dissension between these two parties, not no longer between Paul and everybody, but because of that great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, that might even be worse than beating to death, he commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. I mean, these Romans know the Jews' reputation for violence, and now they have to rush in and save Paul a second time. Almost beaten to death, almost scourged, almost torn limb from limb, all in pursuit of justice? I don't think so. But Paul is now safe, uh, in a manner of speaking, safe from the Jews. But now he's in the hands of the Romans. And is that going to be much better? In verse 11, the answer is yes, because at least the Romans will get him to where he needs to go. The Jews wanted to end things in their capital, Jerusalem. The Romans will end things in their capital, Rome. So verse 11, the night following, the Lord stood by him. And I love the way Luke phrased that. He didn't just say that the Lord appeared to him. It's that the Lord stood by him, which is something he'd been doing all along. I've got your back, Paul, (laughs) just like you've always got mine. He said to him, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. So rest assured, my friend, the end is not here. Now that's comforting, at least in the short term. But comforting in the long term, I don't know. Now remember, Paul is fearless. None of these things move me, he had told his fellow saints. But speaking of movement, to be moved from Jerusalem to Rome, like I said, good short term, I don't know about the long term. Because Romans have their own way of putting away their enemies. And it's a rough one. In some ways, it's even more painful than Jewish execution. I think I'd take a stoning over a crucifixion. But what's going to happen with Paul? In some ways, this is what Jesus had said to Joseph Smith so early in the Doctrine and Covenants. Don't worry about what they can do to you, because they can't do anything to you they didn't already do to me. And I picture Joseph like, is that supposed to make me feel better? They killed you! To which Jesus could say, well, yeah, but I got over it. I mean, the resurrection is a reality. Paul, that's what you're testifying of. 
So no worries. You will survive Jerusalem. Yes, you won't survive Rome, but don't let that move you. In some ways, this is like taking Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and saving them from the fiery furnace just so they could throw them into the lion's den and not spare them there. This is a Joseph Smith being freed from Liberty Jail just so that someday he can get to Carthage. Paul, you've got Rome ahead. Are you ready? Well, verse 12. When it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. Who, to prefer someone else's blood over your own food and water? To risk your own life in order to rob someone else of theirs? Remember in the Book of Mormon when some of Captain Moroni's enemies made a similar oath? That we will not eat or drink until we have drunk the blood of Captain Moroni? Here are these conspirators, 40 of them. One for every lash of the scourging that Paul missed out on. Oh, we'll scourge him ourselves. We will destroy him. Or we'll die trying. Talk about dead set, literally, on his destruction. Verse 14, they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. We're, we're serious about this. We're all in. Now, therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. You catch the plan here? These are conspirators. It was called a conspiracy before. And obviously the Sanhedrin is in on the conspiracy because these conspirators have no fear of being exposed. I mean, they're laying it all out there. We're going to kill the guy, and here's how we're going to do it. You, the, the Roman leaders just brought Paul down to you. Uh, they had him in their hands, and they were going to scourge him. I don't know how he got out of that one, but he, he, he ended up being brought back to the Jewish Sanhedrin. Get him to do it again. Tell the, the Roman leaders that there was a few points of order that we missed or a few additional follow-up questions that we want to ask the prisoner to be able to establish his guilt once and for all. Then we'll hand him back to you and you Romans can do whatever you need to do to execute the punishment. That's the plan. At least that's what you're going to tell them. But what's really going to happen? And again, it's amazing how bold they can be because there's no fear of exposure these people are, in, the leader, the Jewish leaders are in on the conspiracy too. To say, just say you need him back. And as soon as the Romans deliver him, you can keep your hands clean. You don't even have to remove your coats. We'll kill him on the way. We just got to get him out in the open one more time. You see what's happening? Now verse 16, they must have been so overconfident that every Jew was on their side that they started wagging their tongues. They were a little careless about who they told or who overheard them. Because here, 16, when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, so here's Paul's nephew, somehow he heard the plan of the conspirators. He went and entered into the castle, to the Antonia Fortress, where the Roman army was there waiting to put down any insurrection on the Temple Mount. He gets in there and he told Paul, that makes me wonder, again, how did he find out? Was he 
Were they just tongue wagging or was he putting his own life in danger in hopes of discovering some information? Was this just eavesdropping or was this espionage? <laughs> Makes me wonder. There is that fascinating story in church history where some very brave young men in Nauvoo are overhearing the plans of Joseph's enemies to get him onto Carthage and destruction. Well, Paul's nephew, I wish I knew more about this kid, but I'm impressed. Now, when Paul hears this from his nephew, then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who hath something to say unto thee. That leaves the question, will they believe him? Will they do anything about it, even if they do believe? But now at least the Roman centurion knows. The chief captain is aware. Oh, so we can't deliver Paul back to the Jews because this is not a court case. This is a, a lynching. This is vigilante injustice. And we can't stand for that, especially when we have a Roman citizen on our hands. So verse 19, what will they do? Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, this little boy, what is that thou hast to tell me? And he told him the whole story. He said, the Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldst bring down Paul tomorrow into the council as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. That's the story they're going to tell you. We've just got a few additional questions. More evidence has come to the fore, and we need to cross-examine and so on. But, the little boy says, do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. Oh, please steer clear of associations with people that can't be trusted don't yield to those pushing you toward injustice and dishonesty and violence. Please, oh, chief captain, be better than that. Be above that. If you're a Roman in charge of enforcing the law, then please keep it yourself. And see through the charades that these Jewish leaders are acting out. Now, in verse 22, the chief captain has a decision to make. And he makes it boldly. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. Now it's going to keep you safe and it'll keep Paul safe. At least that's my hope. And here's what I'm going to do. He called unto him two centurions saying, Make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea. Again, century or cent means 100. So a centurion... Are you over a hundred men? So here's two centurions. Go get all your troops. Bring 200 soldiers. And we're going to use this little army to escort Paul the prisoner from Jerusalem, which is going to be worse than prison, down to Caesarea, which is more safely under Roman control. Caesarea is basically where the Roman leaders, the political leaders function. So let's bring him there. And in fact, maybe two centurions and their hundred men apiece, maybe that's not enough. So beyond the 200 soldiers, let's bring horsemen, three score and 10. Oh, in just case that's not enough, how about spearmen, 
200, double the original army. And let's take him out at the third hour of the night when no one's expecting. And let's provide them beasts that they may set Paul on. That way he can get his own getaway if need be. And let's bring him safe unto Felix the governor. I mean, this, you want to talk about a, a chief captain who is concerned about the safety of his prisoner. I mean, we sometimes see motorcades, right? Uh, where it's an important person. And so you have, you know, the, the secret service is surrounding the president. Or you see all of these, you know, black... Uh, Cadillac Escalades or whatever they are that are just going to, you always see this in movies. You see the same thing when it's like the ultimate bad guy in some superhero movie uh, or some just the enemy of state and so you have armored cars and you have a military escort and we're trying to keep this person safe in order to keep society safe. Well, this is the ancient Roman equivalent. We're talking an army here which lets you know just how concerned they are for Paul's safety. I mean, if to have a conspiracy of 40 Jewish leaders that are going to come and try to attack Paul, let's outnumber them at least 10 to 1. Let's take an infantry, that's the soldiers, of 200. Let's take a cavalry, that's the horsemen, of 70. Let's take an artillery, that's the spearmen, of another 200. 470 against 40. 10 to 1 odds, plus. Then again, maybe it's just the 40 who started things. They've got the Jewish leaders right in their hands. The Jewish leaders didn't, aren't the ones that exposed this conspiracy to us. This little boy did. And so the, the leaders are on that side. So we might have the whole city in an uproar. I mean, that's what was happening on the Temple Mount. So we must not underestimate what Paul is up against. And we shouldn't underestimate what we're up against either. Oh, it's a little overkill to spend that much time studying Scripture. Uh, the enemy's not really going to do much. Oh, no. If Lest I be deceived in the last days, then I must treasure up continually the words of life. Jesus warned us about that. But here, Paul, what are you going to do? Uh, will you be safe? All of these precautions being put in place. Verse 25, the chief captain isn't done. He wrote a letter after this manner, Claudius Lysias unto the most excellent governor, Felix. Sendeth greeting. I mean, I got to stay on the governor's good side, right? So, oh, your honor, uh, greetings to you. I hope all is well there in Caesarea. Let me explain the political prisoner I'm sending your way. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Not should have, but would have is a better way to say this. He was on the, the verge he was about to be beaten to death. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Now, he hasn't mentioned the role of Paul's nephew. He's so far, Claudius Lysias is taking all the credit for himself. I, I'm protecting a fellow Roman. And again, that's not the entire truth, since he had been more content to let the Jews do their own thing. But verse 28, the letter continues, When I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council whom I perceive to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. This seems to be the issue or the situation for every Roman leader whenever it's a Jewish problem that comes up. It's like, oh man, remember when Gallio was... It's, this is just a matter of words and names and custom and tradition. 
this this is a religious issue, not a political one. So I'm I'm washing my hands of it. Pilate had attempted to do that. Gallio had succeeded at doing that. Well, here Claudius Lysias is doing the same kind of thing. This is more a Jewish matter, but the Jews weren't going to handle things well. I had to protect this guy because he was a Roman, is a Roman. And so what do we do from here? Because, as he explains, when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, so now he doesn't specifically single out Paul's nephew, but he does apprise the governor that there was some kind of plot against the prisoner's life. So when it was told me how the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. So he is now passing the baton to the Roman leadership in Caesarea, a governor named Felix. And the plan is, we're not saying, here, the poor Claudius Lysias, poor, this poor chief captain, I still don't know what's going on. I mean, I'm assuming it's a religious issue, and that's why I was going to leave it to them, but they were going to beat him, tear him apart, limb from limb, and I couldn't let that happen because I still didn't know what he'd done wrong. Uh, and I still couldn't figure it out. I, that's why I sent him to the Sanhedrin, but then I had to rescue him all over again, still confused about what the accusation actually was. So I'm not sending him to you to be freed or to be condemned. I'm sending him to you to be tried. If we can, we're going to have to change jurisdiction here because it's not going to be a, a, fair, a fair court case in Jerusalem. We're going to have to change venues in hopes of getting Paul a fair trial at all. Now, like I said, I'm not trying to decide in advance innocence or guilt. I'm going to let you do that, oh noble Felix. But I'll send the prisoner and I'll tell the Jewish leaders here to go down to Caesarea to meet you. And then they can pick up where they left off. They just won't have the... the rowdy crowds at the Temple Mount that are ready to destroy this political prisoner. Well, this religious prisoner. I don't know what he is. Okay? Felix, you got this? I'm going to go back home to Jerusalem. It's, it's now your problem here in Caesarea. So, verse 31, Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, Okay, fine, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall, basically under arrest until the trial can proceed. I do wonder, though, about that question. Where, where are you from? And when he found out Tarsus and, oh, Cilicia, I wonder if he was trying to pull a, a Pilate here. Remember when Pilate asked Jesus, where are you from? Wait, Nazareth? Ooh, Galilee? That's out of my jurisdiction. That's, that's Herod's problem. So why don't you go to Herod? And that doesn't work, and he comes back, and now Pilate will have blood on his hands. But I, I do wonder if, if Felix is doing the same thing. And yet deciding, rather than sending him off to some other governor in Asia Minor, well, uh, let's just deal with it here. And I'll deal with it, but I've got to wait for your accusers to come. They didn't have the 470-man military escort. So Paul 
stuck waiting. And thus begins Acts chapter 24. Now here's Paul before Felix, and we'll see another chance at self-defense. Honestly, this last part of the book of Acts, uh, today's, this week's material, is all about defense. As Paul is defending himself before Jews, and then before the Sanhedrin, and now uh, before the, the Roman chief captain, now before Felix the governor, then it'll be before Festus, then it'll be before Agrippa. Eventually, it'll be in Rome itself. But self-defense after self-defense. And maybe this Acts of the Apostles is ending this way for us to engage in some apostolic acts of our own. Lowercase a in our case. But bearing witness of the resurrection. Defending the faith against those who would attack it. Will we have the, the courage that Paul showed? And the desire and willingness to share the gospel come what may. That's on us. So let's see again how Paul does it. Acts 24 verse 1. After five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. Now, pause for a moment. Uh, who's coming down? The guy that wanted Paul sm smacked across the face? The whited wall himself? This isn't going to go well. And who does he bring with him? The elders. But those were elders that were in on the conspiracy. They're bummed that it didn't work. They've got everyone they need with a high priest and the elders. I mean, if they're the ones that are going to be able to prosecute Paul based on his supposed offenses against Jewish law, then why do you need a certain orator? Mm, the fact he's an orator should tell us. This is a man known for his eloquence. And especially in the ancient world, eloquence was all about the power of persuasion. That's how Aristotle defined the art of rhetoric. The use of all the means of persuasion available to you. In fact, if you look at the Greek of this verse, the word for orator is rhetoros. And though it's not a very commonly used word in English, a rhetor is someone who speaks in a way they're hoping to persuade others. So we've got a rhetor here. We have an orator. We have someone who is skilled in the art of persuasion. And can you see why the chief priests, why the elders, why the high priest himself would bring someone. He doesn't outrank Ananias. Ananias is the high priest. But, ooh, if he has some kind of technical skill, and the Romans were amazing when it came to rhetoric. It's not just Aristotle the Greek. It's Cicero the Roman that wrote so much about the power of persuasion. Almost, I mean, I studied rhetoric in, in, in during my PhD work, and, and the kind of rhetoric that Roman orators were famous for. Well, here you have Tertullus, I'll put it this way. One of the phrases that was used to describe Sherem in Jacob chapter 7, Sherem is being the first antichrist we meet in the Book of Mormon. It was said of him that he had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people. He was a rhetor. And he could say things in such a way to convince people to leave their faith and go against Jesus. Well, that's exactly what Ananias is banking on. Let's bring Tertullus, who can weave this web of words in such a way that 
the, that Felix himself will be persuaded to have Paul executed. That's the plan. And by the way, another word that's fascinating, here's this certain orator who informed the governor against Paul. Informed seems really objective. I'm just going to provide information. No rhetoric needed. I mean, you can be as bland, as monotone, as uneloquent as possible and still inform. I'm, I'm just trying to lay it out. This is the case against, against Paul. But since it's not just about providing information in a, an objective way, no, it's about persuading people, which is going to play upon their emotions more rather than pure rationalism. Okay, then inform, the actual Greek word there means to exhibit or to manifest or to appear and literally means to make a representation. Now that's fascinating because in rhetoric, when you're trying to paint a persuasive picture, something that will play upon both the mind and the heart and often it's playing on the heart but hiding behind its its reliance upon emotion to make it seem like it's pure reason. Th th seriously, as I'm blown away by this verse because it really does give you a behind the scenes look at what, what the Jewish leadership is trying to accomplish. We're going to pretend to be merely informing you of the facts, but what we're really doing is hiring a rhetor to craft some kind of representation of Paul that will look worthy of condemnation. Well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Well, guilt is going to be in the eye of the beholder. And I'm going to represent Paul in such a way that it seems like pure information when really this is another con conspiratorial setup. I'm just painting a picture of guilt in hopes that, that you'll buy it and condemn Paul accordingly. It's so fascinating to see how people attack the church in our day, for example. And though they claim to be merely informing us, these are the facts, now here's the source, just read it for yourself. Right? Act in pure reason and you'll leave the church. Oh, if we have eyes to see, there is so much rhetoric going on. There is the, the powers of persuasion and how it's being presented and how... Joseph Smith, or the Book of Mormon, or President Nelson, or the history of the church is being represented in its, in its least positive light. Fascinating. Now, verse 2, let's see him go to work. When he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him. So now we get to see this rhetorician weave his web of words, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Now, speaking of Sherem and the other Antichrist in the Book of Mormon, do you remember the, the phrase flattering words? That's exactly what Tertullus is doing to begin his discourse. Your Honor, Noble men and women of the jury, and again, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I, I, want to, I want to be on your good side. And Tertullus is ingratiating himself in, in Felix's estimation, 
to say, oh, you have been such a wonderful governor. I mean, think about it. Worthy deeds, great quietness. Oh, that wasn't quiet back at the Temple Mount. Uh, it's seldom and quiet there between Jews and Romans. But, oh, most noble Felix, we are so grateful for your oh, benevolent dictatorship, <laughs> for your wise rule over our peaceful kingdom. Well, now that the judge has been buttered up, verse 4, Tertullus continues, Notwithstanding, that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldst hear us of thy clemency a few words. It's a fancy way of saying, we are so sorry to bother you, O noble Felix. We, we know you have such important things to do, and we're so grateful for all that you do to keep the peace here. We really were trying to keep the peace ourselves up in Jerusalem, and really we didn't have to descend down to Caesarea. This is such a trivial matter. So I'll, I'll make this quick. It's a simple case, kind of open shut. I'm sure you'll have no problem reaching a verdict, and that verdict, of course, is going to be guilty. So I'm trying not to be tedious. So here's just a few words for you. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow. This is a pest. This is a plague upon the nations. He's a mover of sedition. Ah, there's the political problem. He's done nothing seditious, nothing treasonous against the purple, against Caesar. This is exactly what they were doing with Jesus. Trying to set him up as a, as a traitor to the throne rather than a blasphemer against the law of Moses, okay? So the Tertullus, this, this artful speaker, this rhetorician, this Paul is a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. And how's that for an exaggeration? The whole world is up against this man. Every Jew across the entire diaspora. Paul, I mean, go to any post office in the realm and you'll see Paul's picture as public enemy number one. So all the world knows him as a pestilent fellow. In fact, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And that's an interesting use of language. Not a leader, which is more objective, but a ringleader. Mm, the, even just the language, the word itself, has more of a negative connotation. He's the ringleader of the sect this is not a religion. This is not a faith. This is a sect. Just some kind of offshoot of, Ju of Judaism, the true faith. And we're just trying to cut off that offshoot. It's a branch that's growing in the wrong direction. So he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Uh, Nazareth, you, you, you probably never heard of it, even though you're right here in Caesarea. Can any good thing come of Nazareth? Uh, no, but bad things can. And so this Jesus of Nazareth, that's just a bunch of Nazarenes. So let's give them a name that they haven't claimed for themselves. Just like Christian was first called them, they were branded with that in Antioch. Just like Mormons is what they branded us with. But let's brand them Nazarenes to bring them even down further than Christ, because maybe some people won't get the the irony of calling someone a Christian, a follower of the Messiah. No, let's just, it's some country bumpkin from Nazareth, and he's got a bunch of crazy followers. It's just this little sect, and they've got a ringleader, and it's this Paul guy. It's amazing what you can do by choosing your words wisely, by picking those 
words with the worst possible connotation. It's interesting to hear people describe the church as a cult, which when you really dig down into the meaning of that word, it's funny, you can either describe it so broadly that practically anything can be called a cult, or so narrowly, but then lump the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints into it, that it's like, it's, a scare, it's just scare tactics. Now, I've talked about ideographs before, and these ideographs are words that are vaguely defined, but have so much kind of resonance in the popular mind, that if you can lay claim to that ideograph, lay claim to that word and kind of trademark it, then you win all the arguments. That, the, some call, rhetorical scholars call them God words, and their opposite would be devil words. And church is much more noble of a term than sect, or especially cult. And there are times, again, back to Gallio, when he said that they, these are just word, issues of words and names. And that's what rhetoric often boils down to. And what word are you choosing, and what name are you calling and so much of it is trying to get some kind of an emotional reaction out of us. Or guilt by association with the things that associate with that word. So, ringleader, sect, Nazarenes, all have negative connotations. And Tertullus knows it. He, he's, a good, he's eloquent, all right. He knows what he's doing. But here he finally gets to the accusation. Verse 6. So far, it's all been generalities and name-calling, this pestilent fellow and, and buttering up the, the, the governor. But here, he says of Paul, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. We were going to handle it all in-house. We didn't want to trouble you with such a trivial case. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands. Can you picture this? He's making it seem like they had it all under control. But this local Roman authority overstepping his bounds comes rushing in and comes upon us violently. With that great violence, we were just keeping the peace. This nice, calm court case there in Jerusalem. We didn't want to trouble anyone about it. We're so grateful for the peace that has reigned here ever since you took the reins, O noble Felix. But it was your own people. We did nothing wrong. We shouldn't, they shouldn't have brought the prisoner down here at all. This chief captain, great violence. He was overstepping his bounds. But Lysias brought down Paul, and then he brought down us. At least he commanded his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. So that's the only reason we're here. Because Lysias didn't think we had things under control, we did, and then he dragged the prisoner down and now sort of dragged us down too. We're just here so you can decide for yourself the same thing that we could have decided ourselves and we were trying before this rude Roman interruption. You see what he's doing? Felix, don't waste your time listening to the prisoner's self-defense. We know he's guilty. I'm sure you'll agree as soon as you hear us. But Paul does get a turn to speak. Verse 10, Then Paul, 
after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak. So thank you, Felix. Maybe you are most noble after all. You are letting the, the defendant answer for the accusations. He beckoned unto him to speak, and Paul answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation. And there's Paul admitting, you know how, you know us. You know us well enough by now to know that, well, we've got a lot of internal schisms. Remember, he played upon the schism between the Pharisees and, and Sadducees before. But, Governor, you know that we can be the problem child. That we can be a hard group to manage. Ask any of your predecessors. So you've been many years a judge. But because of that, because you kind of know how things are, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So thank you for allowing me to defend myself. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. You understand? I've only been here less than two weeks. You'd think it would take a little longer than that to organize an insurrection. huh? You'd think that if I had been trying to come up with some plot against the temple, there'd actually be some evidence of that showing up within the last 12 days. But they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city. In fact, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. I mean, they seem to be trying to stack the deck against me. They're making these claims. The orator is eloquently laying out the case against me. The Jews that they brought with them are, are backing the leaders up in all that they say. I've got no one on my side, really. But that's okay. I believe I have justice on my side. So thank you, Felix, for allowing me to speak. You know what it's like to try to keep the peace among Jews. Hard, isn't it? In the last 12 days since I've been back in town, after an absence of years, I was not riling up the people. I wasn't stirring up some kind of insurrection. I wasn't doing what they're accusing me of, of having done. I, didn't, I wasn't disputing with anyone. I wasn't... Remember what Paul had come to do. He was just going to go in and pay the vow and have the heads shaved and, and honor the law of Moses. And now they're accusing me of having trying to tear the law apart? No, there's no proof of any of these accusations. So here's what's really been happening. Verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy... So worship I the God of my fathers. One person's heresy is another person's orthodoxy. And so words and names and questions of, of culture, fine. It's, it, heresy is in the eye of the beholder. And when they see the way that I walk and the way that I worship, it, they consider it heresy. Me, I consider it beautiful truth. So here's my confession. The way they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I'm backing those up. I'm seeing their fulfillment. And as a result, I have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void to offense toward God and toward men. 
I come before you with an untroubled conscience. Felix, thank you for keeping the peace. I've been at peace this whole time. I've done nothing against these people. I've done nothing against our God, the God of my fathers as much as theirs. In fact, what they're really out to get me about is my testimony of the resurrection. And remember, the Pharisees will back him up on that. And if Felix knows the Jewish situation and knows Pharisees and Sadducees, it's like, oh, is this just one of those again? Are they tearing each other apart over their interpretation of their scripture? Here's this man, Paul, who claims to believe what's written in the law and the prophets. It's just a matter of they don't all agree on interpretation. And is there such a thing as resurrection? I love the way Paul puts it. It's this hope. The hope toward God that there will be a resurrection of the dead. That is the essence of the Christian faith. That Jesus rose, a witness of the resurrection. And that because he lives, we will all live again as well. No wonder Paul has no fear of death. He knows that Jesus has already conquered it. And in bearing witness of that, if it costs him his life, so be it. If I perish, I perish, to quote Esther. I will go to the grave with a testimony on my lips that the grave has no victory and death has no sting. It's all been swallowed up in Christ. Paul's testimony is as deep as it comes, and and it's a biblical testimony, he says. All that the prophets have written. Ezekiel and his vision of the dry bones being clothed upon again with living flesh. How the restoration of the house of Israel, a resurrection of sorts itself. Oh, Job, though after I die, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Paul knew scripture. And here's these other Jews that claim to be, claim that I am heretical, when no, I'm actually the less heretical of the two because I really believe what the Bible is saying. Joseph Smith once said that, kind of tongue-in-cheek, when they asked, what, how are you different from other churches? And among other things, Joseph said, well, we actually believe in the Bible. And again, I love Joseph's irony there, his humor. Because the, the accusation against the Latter-day Saints was they don't believe in the Bible because they have this other book, this additional scripture, the Book of Mormon. And yet for Joseph, it's like, no, if you actually did believe in the Bible, then you believe in the Book of Mormon too. You believe in the restoration of the gospel because it's restored biblical Christianity that we're bringing back to the world. So yeah, we are, we're the only ones that seem to really believe the Bible instead of just paying it lip service and then sticking with our interpretations. Paul is saying basically the same thing. Oh, I'm a, a, I'm a biblical believer, not a, not a heretic, but it's the resurrection that I believe in at the core. In verse 17, now after many years, he's describing his three missionary journeys, and yes, that's been many years. After that, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. And those are very Jewish things to do as well. Offerings at the temple, alms for my nation. I still considered myself Jewish, just the fulfillment of my Judaism. But when I did that, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult. I wasn't trying to gather a crowd. I wasn't trying to rile anybody up. I was not fomenting insurrection. 
who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had aught against me? Again, they haven't brought any evidence. They're just throwing out words and making charges. But if I had really been doing those things, shouldn't they have brought the people that could object to my claims of innocence? No, they should have brought them, but they haven't. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council. So they not only have not brought any witnesses, but they haven't borne any specific witness that I've done anything wrong. I mean, if I had, why didn't they report it to the authorities back in Jerusalem? No, why did they want to take care of it all on their own? Why did they want to beat me to death before we had time to convene a court case? Hmm? Why did the Roman chief captain have to break up the false court that was no court? The vigilante injustice that he saved me from. Why? All the evidence points to their injustice, not to my blasphemy or heresy, much less to my sedition or treason. So what's the real charge? What are people really up in arms about? Well, I'll tell you, verse 21. They've got nothing to accuse me of except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead. I am called in question by you this day. That's the real issue. It was the issue for Paul. It was the issue for them. It's the issue for us. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Does the Savior live? If he does, that changes everything. The resurrection is the great evidence of the divinity of Jesus Christ. And all that he's been doing post-resurrection, reassuring his apostles and sending them forth to teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. Appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus to turn him around and send him forth among the Gentiles. The ministry of the risen Lord among the Nephites. The return of Jesus in the sacred grove. The ultimate return of Jesus to a world that hopefully will be prepared for his second coming. That's what all of this boils down to. Does the Savior live? That's what they've brought me in or called me in question before you this day. That's the one voice. But it's the voice I've been raising ever since I saw the light myself. Now, verse 22, when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way and capitalize the W again, he understands, he knows more now about what this way really is. It's a way of life. It's a way of resurrection. But it's a way within Judaism seeing its fulfillment. Okay, he has a more perfect knowledge of that way. He deferred to them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. Which is an interesting decision on Felix's part. It's... Almost like he's just kicking the can down the, down the path a ways. Okay, I'm not going to lay, I'm not going to make, make a, a verdict today. 
Okay, I'm not going to determine the outcome of this case. We're going to let Lysias come back. Remember, he, was, he thought he was clear of this. Like, I brought my army. I got, I got uh, Paul out of Jerusalem, and maybe I can keep the peace back at home better. But here's Felix going, yeah, I'm going to need to hear from him as well. He seems to know some things about what's going on that Paul is telling me, but that you're not telling me, and, and I need to understand his side of things. So uh, it's not a case closed. I'm not pronouncing him innocent, but I'm not pronouncing him guilty. So let's just keep him basically under house arrest. But it's, it's, a, it's not a bad prison, considering the other ones that Paul has suffered in. This one, I will keep him, but I'll let him have liberty. And anyone who wants to come visit, be my guest. I wonder if Felix knows already. Yeah, I know the Jews. I know what happens up in Jerusalem. I, and having heard both sides, yeah, nice oratory, Tertullus. Nice try, Ananias. Uh, Paul, I'm not going to let you go. After all, I do have a kingdom of Jews to rule over, and they'd be up in arms if they didn't get some kind of blood. Felix is almost a pilot here. I'll scourge him, and then I'll let him, I'll let him go. I'll appease them to a point, and then they'll come to their senses. Well, will they? Uh, I don't think so. But in the meantime, Paul, you kind of have free reign here in Caesarea, and any visitors you want, the visitor and hours are wide open. You're a prisoner, quote-unquote, but uh, you're not imprisoned much. Then we see more of that in verse 24 and 25. After certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, Oh, no wonder Felix doesn't want to offend the Jews. He's married to one. Okay, so I've got to appease the people. I've got to keep them happy. And they seem not to like this political prisoner. So mm, let's keep him in, under house arrest. Well, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And what a beautiful thing for Paul to be bearing witness of. Uh, can you tell me more about that? I mean, my wife's Jewish. She believes in some kind of Messiah. You really think he's come? Because what I've always heard from the in-laws is that it'd be some kind of military messiahship that would free the house of Israel from Roman occupation. And that, frankly, that made me a little nervous. But you talk about this faith in Christ, like the Messiah has already come, but we Romans are still here. And so can you help me understand this a little bit better? And Paul reasoned of righteousness temperance, and judgment to come. Think about that. This is what you need to know about the faith in Christ. Not some kind of political liberation, but rather freedom from sin. Let me reason with you of righteousness, because there is a righteousness in Jesus that we can never achieve on our own. Let me reason of temperance. There's self-control. There's self-mastery which Jesus showed from start to finish. I'm trying to live the same way, and, and so can you, O noble Felix. Let me reason with you of judgment, since you're about to pass judgment upon me. And yet the real judgment comes from Jesus, and, and he can pronounce us innocent through our faith in him. Now, quite the first discussion, huh? To which Felix, when he heard it, he trembled. And that's a lighter translation because the Greek suggests a fullness of fear. The, the, the idea that Felix is terrified by these things. 
that's real righteousness, then I'm not noble at all. That's real temperance. Well, I haven't been keeping the peace with real self-mastery. I've been enforcing it instead at the edge of the sword. And judgment? Who am I to judge when I will be judged of Jesus? Yeah, troubled? I, I would think so. So he answers Paul, go thy way for this time. For now, that is. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Oh, this sounds so much like, like Amulek in the Book of Mormon, who knew, but he would not know. And I get a sense of Felix here, the same kind of thing. Oh, Paul, what you've taught me about faith in Christ rings true. I want to hear more, but I'm in a real inconvenient spot right now. Not only leading the Jewish people, but married to a Jewish person. Uh, I got Lysias on one side and, and Ananias on the other, and I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. So it's just not convenient right now for me to hear the rest. Certainly not convenient for me to change and embrace the gospel that you're preaching. Do you remember convenient was the word that was used with Judas Iscariot when it came to looking for a way to conveniently betray Jesus? Back then we talked about our tendency to betray the Lord out of convenience instead of being willing to follow the inconvenient Messiah and, and follow his commandments no matter what they cost us. Felix was unwilling to pay that price. In fact, he was hoping to gain something instead. In verse 26, he hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might lose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. I mean, he's hoping for a bribe. And so any chance that Paul can come, it, give, it satisfies my curiosity. I can learn a little bit more about this faith in Christ. But also every time he comes and I kick the can a little bit further and say, ah, oh, still not convenient. Come on, Paul, when are you going to get a clue that if you'll just bribe me, then I'll let you go. I want some money here. But Paul's not going there. And that lasts for years. The chapter ends, but after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room, or his place, that is. And Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Willing to show the Jews a pleasure? Oh, just one last political gift to your constituents. This is Pilate trying to appease the Jews and have Jesus scourged. This is Herod trying to please the Jews and having James slain and Peter imprisoned. And now it's Felix's turn. I, I'm not going to scourge him or execute him because I know he's not guilty. But I'm going to leave him under house arrest. I will limit his freedom. And so it continues for two long years. Remember Paul back in Athens? He's not very good at waiting. Patience is not his strong point because he wants to be preaching the gospel every chance that he can. Let me at him. Show me a Mars Hill. Let me up to the Areopagus. Can I preach? And here he is stuck in Caesarea just wanting, just wanting to go forward somewhere. Can I get on to Rome? Well, notice what happens in Acts chapter 25. 
Felix is off the, the throne, the local throne. He's no longer the governor. Festus is now sitting there in his place. And in verse 1 of chapter 25, when Festus was come into the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. That's how quick he wants to see where the action is. I mean, Caesarea, yes, we rule from here, but uh, the Jews tend to rule from Jerusalem. So let me see what's going on there. Felix already had a, a lay, knew the lay of the land. He was an expert in what it's like to rule uh, among the Jews. Festus needs to figure it out. So three days in, he's already ascending the mountain. Now, the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul. And again, it's not objective information. It's a subjective representation that they're informing Festus about. And they besought him. They, they want, can we have him back? We want the prisoner back here in Jerusalem. We can take care of it. That's what we kept telling your predecessor. They desired favor against him, that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. Now, I hope that the 40 men <laughs> that conspired against Paul didn't, didn't keep their promise. Because if they did, mm, they've wasted away and starved to death by now. It's been two years that he's been down, down in Caesarea under house arrest. And remember they'd said, we're not going to eat, we're not going to drink until we've shed the blood of Paul. Well, how'd that turn out for you? Well, that's the problem with conspirators. They're usually not quite that serious, at least not if it's going to cost them anything. It's usually a bunch of bluster and fuss. It's usually a bunch of words that they throw out to rile people up. And sure enough, two years later, there's still going to be 40 men and probably many more willing to, to make the same promise and seek the same kind of destruction. So knowing that they've got people like that on their side, the Jewish leaders pick up right where they left off. We tried to convince Claudius Lysias to let us take care of it. He wouldn't. We tried to convince Felix that we could take care of it. He wouldn't let us. Now let's convince Festus. And right off the bat, he's only been in town, in the country for three days. And if we can give him a negative first impression of Paul. Ooh, first impressions are difficult to dislodge. So let's, let's get working on it. But, verse 4, Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea. Down there on the coast, the local Roman political capital. Forget the Jewish spiritual capital. No, I think I'll keep him under lock and key at home. Thank you very much. And that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man, if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down unto Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. It's amazing how fast, I mean, compared to the slowness of Felix, Festus wants to be done with this. It's like he gets the to-do list from his predecessor. It's like, we've had a political prisoner here for two years with no court case? What's the deal? Is he wondering what his, was taking his predecessor so long just to sort this out? So he heads up to Jerusalem, comes back down to Caesarea, tells the people there, we, you want a court case? Fine, but we're doing it in my place, not yours. Okay? Might be the only place to have a fair trial in this crazy, uh, crazy country. So come on down. And sure enough, they do. He brings Paul. And now, two years later, we've picked up where Felix left off before. Verse 7. 
When he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. But who needs proof when you've got rhetoric? Who needs, who needs reason when you've got emotion to play upon? Evidence? Ah, forget it. Let's use eloquence instead. And here's the grievous complaints. Here's the many of them. I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire. So surely you're just going to get rid of him or send him back to us. Either way is fine. Meanwhile, what's Paul say? Well, he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. These are nothing more than false accusations. What you see before you is true innocence, a conscience void of offense toward God or toward any man. I've done nothing wrong. There should be evidence of that since there's no evidence that my accusers are producing. So Festus, what are you going to do? Verse 9, But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, Oh, come on, Festus, I was hoping you'd be better than that. You're faster than Felix, but you're no more noble than he was. No, these are politicians, always pandering to the people, trying to get on the good side of the majority. And as a new politician in town, well, that, can you blame Festus for wanting to get on the good side of the Jews? Well, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, he answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Like, what do you think? You willing to go back home and prove your innocence there among your own people? Is this more of a religious issue and we can just take care of it locally? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. And that was bold of Paul to say. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of those things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. And then the words that changed everything. I appeal unto Caesar. Forget the whole thing. I am sick and tired of waiting here for a Roman governor to have the guts to do what's right. So forget the whole thing. No, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. They've already past judgment and have tried to kill me repeatedly. And I'm not dying in Jerusalem. The Lord himself told me that. I'm going to Rome. And since you don't seem to be sending me there, then I'm taking matters into my own hands. And I appeal unto Caesar. As a Roman citizen, I have the right to do just that. If you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, when they use the word parlay, and it's part of the pirate's code that if you just say the word, it's the word speak in French. If you call for a parlay, they have to let you speak. And you are guaranteed safe passage to the captain so you can explain yourself. That's basically what Paul just did. Parlay. I appeal unto Caesar. In our day, it'd be more like appealing to the Supreme Court. Because if something is being held up on some kind of in some kind of local jurisdiction, then we got to get out of the local and get onto the highest court in the land. I appeal to Caesar. Get me there. I thought that was happening two years ago. 
I had set my face steadfastly to go to Rome, come what may, and by going to the, appealing to the Roman centurion and the Roman chief, a chief captain, by coming down to Caesarea with the military escort, by speaking with Felix, I thought I'd be heading to Rome years ago. But I'm not paying my way. I'm certainly not going to bribe someone here to get me there. No, I deserve to be sent there at Roman expense as a Roman citizen myself. So send me, Festus. I'm tired of festering here. So verse 12, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? It's like, wait, 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 did you just say parlay? Fine. Unto Caesar shalt thou go. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. This is not the Agrippa we met earlier. This is a second. This is Agrippa the second. And now he's in town and he outranks Festus and Felix before him. This, this is King Agrippa in town. And when they had been there many days, King's been in town for a while, and Festus to this point hasn't said anything. You wonder, is he trying to decide, do I bring it up to Agrippa? Ah, am I going to honor what Paul said? Do I say, how do I get out of this and still look good among the people beneath me, the Jews, and before Agrippa, the king, above me? Oh, how do I do? Well, after many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, well, now that you're in town, let me tell you something I probably should have said a few days ago. There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix. Uh, he's been here for a long time. About whom, when I was at Jerusalem, because I just got here, but I went up to, you know, I wanted to see the lay of the land. I'm, I'm trying to be a good governor, king. When I was at Jerusalem, I heard about him. The chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. Notice, they didn't want judgment about him. They wanted judgment against him. Guilty was the, was the only verdict they would have settled for. So I've been caught between this rock and a heart. I've only been here a couple of weeks, boss. And we've already got problems that I inherited from my predecessor. And the problem child is this Paul. What do you think we should do? In verse 16, to whom I answered. So he's, this is his response to those that wanted to that wanted a guilty verdict against him. It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. So there's no anonymous accusations. If you're accused, especially accused of something that brings the death penalty, then you ought to know what the accusation is. You ought to be able to look your accuser in the face to be able to respond to them in some way. You've got to be able to answer for yourself. That's justice. By the way, we live in an age that loves anonymous accusations. Commenters on social media that can say whatever they want behind some pseudonym and people getting accused without the chance to answer for themselves. Well, what does Felix say to Agrippa? Therefore, when they were come hither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed. I was shocked with all the, 
the, the fuss about this, I figured they'd have all kinds of evidence. And they've had years to amass it. They had nothing. I was surprised. This was no civil case after all. Again, this is Pilate realizing this is religious, not political. This is Gallio realizing it's religious, not political. Festus sees the same thing. It doesn't involve Rome. So what are we doing here? Instead, verse 19, he had certain questions against him of their own superstition. And speaking of God words and devil words, superstition is a devil word. Remember when we were studying in Acts 17 on Mars Hill in Athens and Paul says, you're all too superstitious, but the Greek word really just means religious. And it's more of a neutral term, but if you want to make it negative, then call it superstition instead. That actually probably is what Festus meant here. Ah, the Jewish faith, ah, it's beneath us all. I don't know what it is. It's just superstition. That's what the question revolved around. And not just their own superstition. Here's what it really boiled down to. And of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. That's really what this thing's all about. Just, I don't know, some guy. One Jesus. It doesn't sound like Festus really knows anything about him. But some Jesus character, he died, I guess, a couple decades ago under one of our predecessors, Pilate. But this Paul guy keeps telling people that he's alive. So this is really all about resurrection, like Paul always pointed out. And because I doubted of such manner of questions, because who could ever be alive again if they already died? Because I doubted, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. Again, it did sound like it really was a purely religious issue. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, there's Caesar for you, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. So here's Festus trying to appear to Agrippa as an unprejudiced judge. Someone that hasn't already decided the case before hearing him. I was just trying to do my job as a good governor. But now since you've stepped in, I'd love for you to really take my place on this one and decide what do we do. Or at least since he has appealed to Caesar, and probably neither one of us can get in the way of that, I would at least love to get your impression about all of this. So, verse 22, Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. I like Agrippa here. He wants to make up his own mind. He doesn't want to decide things secondhand. Fascinating story. And it was above, <laughs> evidently it was above Felix's pay grade, and now you're admitting it's above yours. I'd love to hear him out. And Festus was great with that. So, tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice, with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing, and notice the word that was just used. That's the best word for a courtroom that I could think of. The place of hearing. I mean, think about it. What do they call it when you're brought to court? It's called a hearing, isn't it? And isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Listening? Withholding judgment? Not coming with our prejudices, our prejudgments? No, we're giving the accused, a hearing. We're letting them speak for themselves. And if we're active listeners, if we're open-minded and, and open-hearted, then we'll be able to judge wisely. So bring him to the place of hearing. Who else came? With the chief captains and principal men of the city. At Festus's commandment, Paul was brought forth. So we got everybody here. 
courtroom jam-packed with all the relevant parties? At that point, Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. Yes, this is a capital case we're hearing today. The death penalty is being sought. A man's life hangs in the balance. So may we lend him our ears. Verse 25, when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. I still don't know what he's being accused of, and so I'm going to feel like an idiot if I send the prisoner to the Supreme Court and it still hasn't been established what this case boils down to. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. So until we have a clear accusation, I think we'll be wasting Caesar's time. And I don't want to do that. So, Paul, what did... What's the problem here? Chief priests and accusers, what evidence have you brought? This thing has been dragging on for more than two years, and I'm ready to be done with it, but we've got to do our due diligence. So what do you have to say? Now here, as we get basically to the midpoint of this week's lesson, I told you there was a lot here. Don't, don't fall asleep, Eutychus. It's here that we have another cliffhanger. Because if you want to stop here and, and rest and, and come back for the court case, please remember where we are leaving off. What, the, the, the place where Acts chapter 25 ends is just the way we saw chapter 21 end, with, another cliff, with a cliffhanger. With Paul about to defend himself then it was to defend himself before the Jews that had just tried to beat him to death. Here it's to defend himself before Roman leadership. One last chance to bear his witness on the local level before he'll take it to the throne of Caesar himself. What will Paul say? How will he defend himself? More importantly, how will he defend the faith? Getting past that cliffhanger, as you turn the page from Acts 25 to Acts 26, we get to see Paul's self-defense and his defense of the faith he held so dear. We've seen him tell his conversion story already. Well, here we get to hear it again. And this time it is before King Agrippa II. In verse 1, Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. And it makes me wonder, if I was given the same opportunity, what would I say? What soul-shaping spiritual experience can I bear witness of to explain why I've been living the way I have all these years? There's something powerful there to ponder. Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. What would you say? Well, Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, 
because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. So thank you for this privilege. I'm happy to answer for myself, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. So not only thank you for the opportunity, but thank you for your expertise in, in these issues. Festus had, oh, excuse me, Felix had that kind of expertise as well. He married a Jewess. He'd been here a while. Festus, no offense, <laughs> Your Honor, but you're new in the area. So I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad that you were doing your homework as quickly as you could. You got here and you immediately went up to Jerusalem. But Agrippa, you know Judaism well, and so I'm grateful to have a, a well-informed conversation partner. I actually loved Divinity School to have conversations about the restored gospel. Often I was in the Bible Belt and I'd go on splits with the missionaries and I'd talk to you know, pastors or, or other members of evangelical churches that thought they knew everything about Mormonism because they'd read something anti and said, oh, well, Mormons aren't Christians and so dismiss it from the start. Uh, or that, oh, Latter-day Saints don't believe in the Bible, and so forget them. And again, it's just, uh, let's attach some devil words to them, and then we don't have to think about it. And, and yet, at Divinity School, you've got people who know religion. You've got people who love to learn about it, and, and talk about it. And because it's grad school, they tend to have open minds. And those were fascinating conversations. Sometimes I'd be walking through the student lounge, and I'd hear a few people go, oh, there's the Mormon. Halverson, come here, come here. And, and I'd come over and like, what? And I, yeah, we were talking about this issue, this theology or this doctrine or whatever. And, and I'm Methodist. I feel this way about it. This person is Episcopalian. They feel that way about it. What, what, where do you Latter-day Saints weigh in on this? And it was so fun to have a conversation partner that, was, that had an open ear, but enough of a knowledge base that we could just run with it. It was really fun. And in some ways, Paul is sensing that with Agrippa. I'm glad you, you know these things. So will you please hear me out and hear me patiently? Don't rush to a conclusion yet. Verse 4, let me tell you my story. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. So we don't have to rehash that. But everybody knows it, okay? Those which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And that's exactly what he had said to the Jews earlier. I'm, I'm the, the apprentice of Gamaliel himself. I am a Jewish Jew. I am a Pharisaical Pharisee. The straightest sect there is. I, I, these are my Jewish bona fides. These are, this is my, my street cred. Do you understand what I'm talking about, Agrippa? Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise are twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Several times Paul has brought up hope as the crux of the issue. Before he was talking about the hope of the resurrection, here he's talking about the hope of the Messiah. Because here I was, a Pharisee, the straightest sect. And I was banking on the coming of the Messiah. 
I knew the Hebrew Bible and could quote any messianic prophecy by heart. And I just wondered, when will God keep that promise? The promise made of God unto our fathers. When will the Abrahamic covenant be fulfilled? My heart had turned to the promises made to the fathers. And I wondered, I served God day and night. The whole house of Israel has been doing that for the sake of the hope God planted within us. We have been hoping for freedom. Ever since we were granted freedom from Egypt. But then to suffer bondage under Assyrian rule, under Babylonian rule, under Persian, under Greek, and now under Roman. We have been holding out hope that those hopes would be fulfilled someday. And it's because of the fulfillment of that hope that I'm here. Now again, that might cause some question marks. Because <laughs> the Romans are still in charge. You of all people know that, oh mighty king. But that's okay by me. It was okay by Pilate uh, because he came to know that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. And that's the kingdom I'm a part of. That's the kingdom I'm trying to build. You can come and be a part of it yourself. I tried to teach Felix about the faith of Christ, righteousness, temperance, judgment. I'm happy to teach you about the same things. I'm honored to bear witness of Jesus. And in Jesus' case, as I've said repeatedly before, it comes back to the resurrection. So straightest sect, Pharisee, yes, resurrection is a doctrine embraced by the Pharisees. And not only was I able to embrace that doctrine, when I came to know Jesus, I embraced its fulfillment. The first fruits of them that slept. That's what he gets at in verse 8. When he asks Agrippa, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? And incredible in our day means like amazing, astonishing, this is so cool, it's awesome. But literally, incredible, cred means belief. That's the root word for belief. And like, like credibility. And so if something is incredible, that's unbelievable. And sometimes we say that too in, in terms of awesome. It's unbelievable. But literally, that's really hard to believe. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. But for Paul, as a Pharisee growing up with belief in the resurrection... And then, like I said, seeing its fulfillment, Agrippa, let me pose the question to you. Why is that so unbelievable? When it's God that's doing it, that God should raise the dead. After all, if God can give life, why can't he restore life? If God can create, why can't he recreate? I mean, even Caesar, and probably even you, King Agrippa, or you, Governor Festus, you seek immortality yourselves in a certain way. You almost deify the emperor and create temples and palaces to his glory. Uh, isn't Augustus Caesar trying to gain an immortality of sorts? Well, it's real immortality that I'm after. And I've seen it in the risen Lord Jesus of Nazareth. 
So please don't think this incredible. It's only hard to believe because it's too good to be true, but it's true. Sure enough, verse 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I thought I was doing the right thing. I was zealously defending the Jewish faith, just like my accusers are doing to me. Okay, I, 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 I'm just like them. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities, foreign cities, that is. I, I wanted to take my show on the road and got permission to go all the way to Damascus to start dragging Christians back to Jerusalem. Since in Jerusalem, oh, we can take matters into our own hands as long as we can keep the Romans at bay. That was my plan. I wanted martyrdoms left and right. I wanted to make everyone a new Stephen. And yet... Verse 12, whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, this was broad daylight, I was not dreaming, at midday I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun. You didn't think you can turn up the light when it's high noon. Well, there was a brilliance I had never seen before. This light was shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. This is the same testimony he bore to Felix. And now he's bearing it to Agrippa. Once I saw the light from heaven, everything changed. And I pray you'll see that light from heaven and change as well. So verse 16, what did this Jesus whom I persecuted say to me? He said, rise and stand upon thy feet for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, so things from your current present that will quickly become your past, bear witness of those things, minister about those things, but also of the things in the which I will appear unto thee. This is not my, this is your first vision, not your last. I will appear unto thee. These are things from the future, and I want you to bear witness of those once you learn them also. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's your mission, Paul. It's a mission of mercy. It's a mission to others. And in a way, it will be a, ref a reflection of your own experience. Gaining eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to feel. Having light dawn upon you. 
experiencing the power of God in your own life. And then go forth and make sure everyone else does too. Open their eyes. Turn them from darkness to light. Help them overcome, break out of the power of Satan. Come unto God so they can be forgiven. That's what this whole thing's for. It boils down to faith and repentance. Faith in Christ leading us to repentance, which brings in the forgiveness of sins. Thus, Jesus can sanctify us. That's what he did for Paul. It's what he'll do for Agrippa or Festus or Felix, or Claudius Lysias, or even Ananias, thou whited wall, you really can be washed clean if you'll just open your eyes. I love every time Paul tells his story. We see slight variations each time, which I find beautiful. Is it based on the audience? You need to hear this part. Is it based on Paul's own recollection? Oh, yes, this I need to say. People that are up in arms over the multiple accounts of the first vision, sadly, are usually up in arms over the multiple accounts of Paul's experience as well. Well, not all the case. If you're not every time. If you're skeptical across the board, then yes, you you throw them, you lump them all together as liars and deceivers. And and Joseph Smith felt that. Yeah, you you criticized Paul. You thought he was crazy. You've said the same thing about me. Fine. You want to put me in Paul's boat? Bring it on. Because like Paul. He knew it, and he knew that God knew it, and he could not deny it, and I feel the same myself. I love Joseph Smith's personal connection to Paul that he brought up at times when he was being persecuted. So remembering different things from his experience with Jesus and with the Father, totally fine. There were different audiences and different parts of the experience that he remembered They all come together into one beautiful whole. And it's life-changing once we see the light ourselves. Well, in verse 19, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. I mean, would you be? To see the veil part, the heavens open, the Lord descend? I'm not going to disobey that. And so I've been following orders ever since. How did I do it? I showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. He basically just said repent three different times. (laughs) Repent and then turn to God. Remember, turn means to repent and do works meet for repentance. Show the evidence of that repentance by how you live ever after. For these causes... The Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. That's that's the whole reason they're up in arms against me. I said before that the core of Paul's message was resurrection, and it is. But also the core of Paul's message is repentance. Because that's what he's crying. That's That's what we need to do in order to change. Once we've seen the light and have faith in Christ, then it naturally moves us towards the change of heart and the change of action that evidences it. So please turn. Men and brethren, what shall we do? You haven't even asked the question yet, but let me give you the answer. Repent. Believe. Be baptized. Receive the Holy Ghost. The doctrine of Christ is being offered to even you. Will you take it?
in some ways, it's ingenious of Paul to emphasize those two aspects of resurrection and repentance because they're, they're so similar. You remember when we studied Acts chapter 9 and saw the repentance of Paul, but then ended the chapter with the, well, resurrection of sorts, the raising of Tabitha. And we talked about that those are juxtaposed because it's the same story. That repentance is a newness of life. It is a resurrection before the resurrection. And so to testify of those things hand in hand, Paul continues his testimony in verse 22. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day. And it's been over a decade since that happened. I have been continuing, obeying, serving, testifying, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. You see, I'm, I'm still a Jew of the strictest sect. I'm still honoring the law because I've seen its fulfillment. I'm bearing witness of that. And here's my witness, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Both Jew and Gentile alike are being invited into that light. This is what he had taught earlier, that I believe in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, I recognize the fulfillment of its messianic prophecies. Jesus was not disqualified by the crucifixion. If anything, that's what qualified him. Because in succumbing to death, he could then conquer death, not only for himself, but for us all. That's what I've been bearing witness of. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus was all part of the Father's plan and the Father's promise to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. None of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant could come without the resurrection. Without Christ's power over sin and death, then what's the point of a promised land or prosperity and posterity? What's the purpose of priesthood and the blessings that it entails? We can't receive any of those, at least not permanently. So yes, this is the message. This is the inheritance that I am trying to pass forward. And then, verse 24, As he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, he's kind of speaking out of turn since he's been outranked. Agrippa is in town. But Festus speaks up loudly, wanting everyone to hear. Paul, thou art beside thyself. Oh, much learning doth make thee mad. And that's what Joseph Smith brought up that people accused Paul of being crazy. Well, they're accusing me of the same kind of insanity. I do wonder, though, if Festus is almost trying to make up an excuse for Paul. I'm not going to say that you're lying. I'm just going to say that you're crazy. Uh, non compos mentis, I believe, is the, the Latin term, that you're not mentally capable. This is the insanity plea. I mean, it's a court case after all. And maybe Festus is trying to come to the rescue of Paul. Like, this sounds crazy to me. Somebody dying and then rising from the dead. And then, yeah, okay, okay, Paul, sure. Cuckoo. Uh, Agrippa, we should probably, I, I don't know if we should waste Caesar's time with this, but let's, maybe this is what Festus was, or what Felix was thinking. We'll keep him in a nice house arrest. It's like, let's commit him to the, to the asylum but we'll take care of him and we can have visiting hours and anybody who wants to come can. But Paul, you're crazy. All this learning. Yeah, you spent a little too much time in Athens. 
And all that philosophizing has kind of fried your brain. There's no way this stuff it could be true. But in self-defense, Paul says, I am not mad, most noble Festus. And that most noble might be Paul giving Festus the benefit of the doubt for what Festus had done to give Paul the benefit of the doubt. Thank you for calling into question my sanity in hopes of getting me off the hook. But mm, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not insane, and I'm not going to use an insanity plea to get out of things. I'm here for a purpose, and my purpose will lead me to Rome. So I'm in complete control of my own thoughts. I am not mad, most noble Festus. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness, and soberness suggests that, that sanity as well. Remember back in the day of Pentecost when they accused Peter of being drunk? And that's why they're babbling these crazy things, and it sounds like foreign languages. And he's like, what are you talking about? It's like 9 a.m. Nobody's drunk here. We're all sober. And Paul is preaching words of truth and soberness. And then he points to the king's own knowledge of, of Judaism and these kinds of issues. He says, for the king knoweth of these things before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. That is such a powerful phrase. This was not done in a corner. We're not trying to keep this out of the light of day. If anything, we're trying to bring it out into the light. We want the world to see. So we're not keeping it in a corner. We are going to the four corners of the earth, trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know this, Agrippa. How can you not? So it's not just the Jewish things that you're aware of. It's the Christian things that you're coming to know. This movement is moving fast, and it's on everybody's radar. There are Jews and Gentiles streaming into the kingdom everywhere we go. I have been on not one, not two, but three missions all across Israel and Syria and into Cilicia and Asia Minor and beyond into Macedonia and down into Greece, the island of Cyprus, you name it. I've, I've probably been there or somewhere close. These things are not done in a corner. And the world can bear witness of the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> this moment actually reminds me of the great scene that Elder Packer talked about, where he was being sent by Harold B. Lee on a very difficult assignment, and it was daunting to him. He asked President Lee for advice, and President Lee's advice was classic. He just said to an overwhelmed Boyd K. Packer, just remember it isn't 1830 anymore, and there aren't just six of us. <laughs> I love that. This kingdom is rolling forth across the earth. And by the millions, there are Latter-day Saints far and wide living the gospel of Jesus Christ. This thing, the restoration, is not done in a corner. And so have some confidence, Elder Packer. And he did. There are much more than six of us, that's for sure. Verse 27, Paul then asks the pointed question, King Agrippa, Believest thou the prophets? And then he answers it before Agrippa even has time to. I know that thou believest. Agrippa had some Jewish roots as well. And so 
I do believe that you believe. In fact, I know you do. And then Agrippa, finally speaking for himself, said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Oh, you are so close. I, I do know so much of what you're saying. I have heard about these things. And yes, these are words of truth. These are words of soberness. I, I can't help but be convinced by them to a point. It's just getting past that point. It's like Apollos. You know in part, but don't you want to know in full? And Agrippa is almost there. To which Paul says, Oh, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. An amazing statement, kind of closing arguments on Paul's part. Oh, Agrippa, you're so close. I wish you were more than close. I wish you were all the way there. I wish you were just like me because I used to be just like you. I was almost persuaded. Well, I was <laughs> persuaded that I had the truth in Judaism. And Judaism is almost Christianity as far as Paul is concerned. It is, Christ it is Judaism. It's Judaism fulfilled. And I became almost and then altogether convinced when I saw that light. And ah, I wish you would follow the same path. I wish you were like me. Not just you, but everyone here. I wish you were all just like me. Not the bonds. <laughs> I don't want you to have physical bonds, but I recognize your spiritual ones. And I came out of mine. The Savior delivered me. He's trying to deliver you. If you would only become not only almost persuaded, but altogether convinced and converted that Jesus is the Christ, he is the just one. He is the Holy One of Israel, the living Lord, the conqueror of sin and death, the light of the world. Do you see him? Years ago, when Cecil B. DeMille made the movie The Ten Commandments, the famous one with Charlton Heston, he wanted to test it on a rel very religious audience. And where better to go to find one than Salt Lake City, Utah? And so this amazing Hollywood director wanted to premiere the movie in Salt Lake, or at least preview it among the saints, to get a sense how do religious how would religious people feel? Does Charlton Heston really look like Moses? I think so. Uh, the the great Latter Day Saint painter Arnold Freeberg was the the costume designer, so he already had some connections with Latter Day Saints through Freeberg and. And so he came to Salt Lake and sh showed the movie, and everybody loved it. And he ended up becoming a close friend of David O. McKay, president of the church, the real modern Moses. Uh, if he were a younger man, he should have cast him <laughs> rather than Charlton Heston. But uh, Cecil B. DeMille spoke at BYU in a big devotional. I mean, he became a, a great friend of the Latter-day Saints. And the, and the saints, including the saint-in-chief, President McKay, befriended him. At one point, Cecil B. DeMille said to David O. McKay, knowing his <laughs> book of Acts, chapter 26, he said to President McKay, almost thou persuadest me to be a Latter-day Saint. Oh, being here, knowing 
the goodness of the saints, seeing the evidence of your faith, meeting a man who claims to be a modern Moses, a living prophet, and who am I to deny him? He does not seem crazy. He seems to preach words of truth and soberness. And, oh, there's a few things holding me back, but man, <laughs> President McKay, I'm this close. I love that story. I would love it even more if he were more than an almost, if he were an altogether. And which will we be? Have I almost repented or am I altogether repenting? Do I almost have faith in Christ or am I altogether converted to his gospel? Am I almost temple worthy or am I altogether ready to enter the house of the Lord? Almost served a mission or altogether ready to dive in and make a difference? In any aspect of your discipleship, ponder those terms and see in which direction you're heading. Almost or all together. And then the court case ends, as does this chapter, verse 30. When he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with him. And when they were gone aside, so out of the hearing of the crowd, they talked between themselves, saying, this man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. It's like, this guy's obviously innocent. He's done nothing wrong. I'm I'm not, I'm almost a Christian, but I'm altogether convinced of this Christian's innocence. Okay, he's done nothing worthy of death or even bonds. We've, we've held him under house arrest far too long as it is. And then said Agrippa unto Festus, so one leader to another, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. There almost seems to be regret on his part. Oh, if only he hadn't called out parlay. We could have handled things ourselves, and we could have pronounced him innocent. And who cares what the, the Jewish mob is clamoring for back home in Jerusalem? No, innocent man. But we have to, we have to honor his wishes. Which, to be honest, is fine with Paul. Can you picture him kind of <laughs> wandering over to that side of the room and there they are trying to get behind closed doors or just out of the out of earshot of the multitude and he's kind of leaning over and they're whispering like this guy is totally innocent and Paul's like yeah yeah I agree I mean just zip the lip if only he hadn't said I appeal to Caesar we could let him go right now and you picture Paul going but I, but I want to go to Caesar oh, yeah, I, sorry I'll stop interrupting but do you get a sense this is where I'm destined to go Jesus told me that. And the same one that called me back from Damascus is urging me forward toward, toward Rome. We're not going to call this the fourth mission, but in some ways it is one. It is his journey to Rome. And that is what we see in chapter 27 and chapter 28. And it's exactly what Paul wanted. He set his face steadfastly. He was trying to get there. It's been years I've been chomping at the bit, trying to get out of Caesarea so I can go see Caesar himself. So chapter 27 opens with this voyage underway. It's a fascinating story here, especially once you see past the literal and into the symbolic. So let's put those glasses on and try to see some application and some relevance in our own journeys 
toward whatever destiny the Lord would have in mind. Chapter 27, verse 1, And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, and Paul has never been that far west. Greece was as far to the west as he had gone. He crossed the Aegean, but he never passed the Adriatic. So are we really going, finally, all the way to Italy? Well, yes. But when it was determined that they would, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. So yes, he's in charge of his hundred men, but of Augustus's band? Wow, he must be an important centurion. And entering into a ship of Adramitium, fun word to say, we launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, and one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. Now, this doesn't sound like they're treating Paul like a political prisoner. Do they know of Paul's innocence as well? This sounds a lot like Joseph of Egypt, who quickly gets on the good side of Potiphar, and then the jailer, and then Pharaoh himself. And so here you have this centurion, this leader. Paul, I know you're under arrest, and we're taking you back to, to Caesar himself, but uh, you're at liberty to do whatever you need to do. And if you need to stop here and go see your friends, then be my guest. Just get back on board as soon as possible. Uh, to refresh himself. I do love that thought, too. That Paul, I'm set on, on Rome. Ah, but how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Is he feeling some of that? I will not be moved, but is his heart beating a little faster the closer he gets? to his final destination, to be able to go and be refreshed in the company of friends is so important for anyone who is facing something difficult. And that describes Paul to a T. So verse 8, when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. We couldn't go up over it. We had to go under it. All these contrary winds. There's something that's how oh, it, make, it makes it seem easier to go back and, and not fulfill the mission that the Lord has in store for me. But no, we'll just find another way around it. We're going one way or another. They sail under Cyprus. Who cares if the winds are contrary? When we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. I mean, it's going the rest of the way, so let's put you on that boat instead. And when we had sailed slowly, many days, and scarce were come over against Sinidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete, over against Salmone, and hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Now, don't worry so much about the names of all these places. Again, there's no map quiz at the end of the lesson. But think about the details of how long it's taking and how slowly they're going. Sailed slowly, many days. The winds were contrary. The winds were not suffering us, hardly passing by. Does that describe life sometimes? And I'm trying to do what's right, and I'm trying to go where God sends me. I know He wants me in Rome. If that's the case, then what's, where's the help? This is like the Jaredite cruise which was no pleasure cruise. It was not the love boat. This was mountain waves dashing upon them and swallowed up in the depths of the sea and storm and wind, and yet the wind 
blowing them where they needed to go. Just not as easily as they might have expected. This is the Latter day Saint pioneers that it was not just a stroll in the park to get to to the Salt Lake Valley. These are the handcart pioneers, the, the Lord of Weather. And they were banking, the William Martin handcart companies at least, were banking on a light and late winter and instead got an early and hard one. Wow. The Lord really does want to stretch us, doesn't he? He does want us to prove to ourselves how badly we really want to get to Rome after all. And what are we willing to sacrifice and how much are we willing to suffer on the way? Just because the wind seems contrary doesn't mean you're going in the wrong direction. It might be evidence that you're going in the right direction. But God is serious about you building muscles. So he's adding on the weight. Okay? Keep that in mind. As they wait here in a place that's called Fair Havens. And that at least is promising. And are there times in, as we're swimming upstream or going against the wind that we finally find a fair haven? It's like the Sabbath day, a ah, time of rest. A place where we can be refreshed with the fellowship of other saints. There they are at fair havens. And verse 9 comes. Now, when much time was spent... And so it's taking forever, and why can't we go? And when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. So it, it is not wise for us to continue at this point. We need to stay here in fair havens. And there are times when prophets tell us to march forward and times where, he, where the prophets tell us to hold back. Times when the Leahona says go and times when the Leahona says stop. Times when the Spirit pushes us forward and times it reins us in and tells us not to preach, right? Paul had that experience earlier in Asia Minor. And so now we need to stay here because the time is spent and it's dangerous to sail at this point of the year. When it says the fast was now already passed, the fast is most likely referring to the Jewish Day of Atonement, which was a day of fasting and prayer, of mourning, of repentance, atonement, right? Good, good symbol for all of this. It's a fall festival, and in the fall and winter, that's when the storms really pick up in that part of the Mediterranean. And the sailors, those ancient sailors knew it well. And so would not sail during that time period. And they would kind of hunker down and find a fair haven to stay in. And that's exactly what Paul is recommending. I wonder sometimes, let's switch the metaphor a little bit, and think about our own journeys and at times where it's hard because, it, because we are going in the wrong direction. And does the prophet ever tell us, can you stop what you're doing and stay here and try to get your bearings? Look up through the, the darkness and find the North Star and redirect yourself. Repent of your sins. 
because right now the time is, has been spent on lesser things and you've got to change your ways. When it says the sailing is now dangerous, if you keep going forward on this path, it's a path to self-destruction, especially if the fast is past. Times of worship and repentance, the day of atonement. Now, I'm not saying we ever pass the day of atonement. Every day is covered by the atonement of Jesus Christ. But to get to a point in our own minds where we start wondering, am I beyond the redeeming reach of Jesus Christ? Is the day of atonement behind me? If so, then you better believe sailing is now dangerous. And the time is, is far spent. Now hold on to your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Just like Paul has been preaching over and over. But please listen to him. At this point, what's he saying to do? Stop. Stop where you are. Stay here in fair havens and wait. How, let patience have her perfect work. Let time do some healing and some changing. There's still a journey ahead. Don't you worry. The time is not past. You're not past the atonement. But right now, let's take stock of where we are and make some real changes. Now, the question is, will they trust the prophet? Will they follow the prophet? Will they accept the urging of Paul? Well, verse 11 answers that question. Nevertheless, so despite his recommendations to the contrary, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. So that's the first problem. And again, liken this to yourself. Try to find some application. Who do we trust? I mean, the prophet tells us to stay here. And here I am, the centurion. I've got to make a decision what we're going to do. I'm in charge here. I have my own agency. And the prophet's pulling me in one direction, but the master and owner of the ship is pulling me in the other. Now be careful, because uh, the master and owner of the ship, probably, those two, those probably have all the reason in the world to want to move forward. Because I don't get paid for having my ship stay in port. I get paid for delivering goods and cargo and prisoners, and then I can pick up another load and keep on going. Sitting around at fair havens, this does me no good. And sadly, who does the centurion believe? He believes the master. He believes the owner more than he believes Paul. And that's not the only thing. Next verse, and because of the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attend to Fennus and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. Now, you see what they're feeling here? I mean, they call it fair havens, but it's not that fair. It's kind of like Greenland. <laughs> it's, it doesn't seem very green to me. It seems more like Iceland. Here, fair havens? No, it's not, I love this phrase, it's not commodious to winter in. It's kind of like that, it's not convenient to do what's right, right now. And because it's not commodious, it's not as fair as they think, and there's a fairer haven later on. And if we can just go there, and it's not just the master now, and it's not just the owner now, it's the more part of the people. 
because they don't want us to be stuck in an incommodious port. Let's move on. Let's go. Because if by any means, I mean, there's a chance, but hey, let's take the risk and let's move forward because we know what it's going to be like if we're stuck here. We don't want it. So Paul, what you're asking of us is not something that we want. To follow a prophet in this situation would be inconvenient. The standards that they are setting for us are not commodious to winter in. And especially when the more part, it's not just the celebrities, it's not just the masters and owners, it's the more part, it's the general population. And if public opinion is pulling us in one direction, who am I to listen to a prophet that's trying to lead me in the other? Now, there are so many interesting things about this story that feel so relevant in our own day. And who will I listen to? And am I aiming for convenience? Or am I willing to winter in a place that the prophet has told me is safe? It really is fair. Stay in the haven. Well, centurion, you've still got this choice to make. What are you going to do? Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly. Oh, see, there's no storm to worry about. It's all fine. It's, it's going to be great. It, the if by any means, it's happening. By all means, let's go. So as the wind blows softly, lulling them into this sense of security. Can you picture the soft wind rocking the boat back and forth like a cradle? Little lullaby. It's all going to be fine. Do what you want. Ignore the prophet. Reject the apostles. Life's good. You can be happy. But as the wind blows softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, you see, where it's all good, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. You see, we're not going to wander far. We'll stay within sight of the land. If anything happens, we can just rush on back. It'll be fine. We're gonna, it's, I'm not trying to to tear you away from the faith. I'm not trying to completely reject the prophet. I'm just, I'll keep him in sight. Uh, but we're going to do things our way. And everything seems to be pointing towards our purpose. It's, it's fine. The prophet's just overreacting. Where nothing could possibly happen to us. But next verse. But not long after. And sure enough, it usually doesn't take long for the consequences to come. Not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind. And that's no longer the softly blowing wind we saw a verse ago. No, it's tempestuous. It's called Eurocliden. I don't know if I pronounce that anywhere near the right way, but this word combines the Greek word for east wind and another word that either means north wind. Here comes these winds coming to clash. No wonder it's tempestuous. Or perhaps another word meaning surging waves. And that sounds like a typhoon. That sounds like a hurricane going on. Tempestuous wind. That's what falls and winters are known for in this part of the Mediterranean. What were we thinking? That we'd get out of it somehow? Well, when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. I mean, we had no choice. We had lost control of this. And holding on to the rudder wasn't doing us any good. We couldn't, we'd lost control of our lives and we just let it drive. 
and running under a certain island which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. And by the boat, we mean the lifeboat, not the ship itself. We have no control over that. But even trying to hold on to some kind of little lifeline, something we could jump into, at least a few of us, and try to preserve our lives. Now, it takes so much work even to hold on to that because we've lost control. I thought I could handle things. When the prophet warned me about the word of wisdom, oh, I thought a little alcohol here or a little tobacco there or an occasional recreational drug. And yet now I find myself, my, find myself in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. I find myself in addiction, needing help to find recovery. That's the world that my wife and son work in. And to see the much work that it takes to hold on to some kind of lifeboat, and many of them won't even hold on to that because they just let it drive. They're caught, and they can't bear up, and their life is no longer their own. That can be true of breaking the law of chastity. It can be true of any time we disregard the prophet because the south wind is blowing softly. Because the standards they're requiring are incommodious. Because the master and the owner and the more part of the people are promising us easier ways. Oh, it was only easy for a time. That's what the prodigal son learned. And it wasn't until he hit rock bottom that he came to himself. Well, this ship, is it about to hit rock bottom? Because there's no coming back from, from that kind of a shipwreck. What's going to happen? Verse 17, which when they had taken up, so they hoisted up the lifeboat. They used helps, better word there would be ropes, undergirding the ship. Now this is really wild to picture this. What, what they're doing is they're taking these ropes and, and passing them underneath the, the bow of the ship, getting it down around the hull. So in hopes that somehow these additional ropes will help hold the planks of the ship together. I mean, that would make me really nervous if I saw that happening on a cruise. Like, what are you doing with all those ropes? Uh, don't, don't ask. Uh, but here we are trying to keep the ship from falling apart beneath us. Yeah, tempestuous wind, I'd say so. Now, fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands. And a better translation for that would be sandbars. But water's too shallow to sail in. Afraid of that, they strake sail, and so were driven. What they mean by that is they threw out the anchor, hoping to slow down their drift. Now let's, let's strike the sail. Get that down. We, want, we don't want to be blown about by this tempestuous wind. Let's throw out the anchors and hopes it will just slow us down as we're drifting toward these sandbars. Because if we fall upon them and it, it can break the hull of our ship to the point that no number of ropes would help hold it together. Even that's not going to be enough. And so the next verse, we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. So things that we were holding on to because we thought they might come in handy later on. More ropes to, to tie the boat together. But no, anything weighing us down has got to go even the tackling of the ship. And so they throw it overboard. 
and keep going. When neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. This is the end of the path when we've disregarded the prophet's voice. We will be looking for lifeboats and finding none. We'll be trying our best to just hold it all together. And yet will the ropes hold your planks from falling apart? Quicksand. Sandbars. But I do like the King James translation because I think of quicksands being something that just swallows us up and we start sinking into it. And sometimes the more we struggle against it, the faster we sink. And we're just looking for someone to throw us a lifeline. Is there anyone there to help? Or have they abandoned ship and abandoned us? We have no more tackling. There's nothing left. Desperate times, here I am. And what am I going to do? I've met people at that stage of their departure. This is the prodigal son hitting rock bottom. And where do I go from here? Have I lost sight of the sun and the stars? Am I, do I find myself in, in total darkness? And have I lost all hope to ever be saved? I am fascinated by Acts chapter 27. So often we skip over it as mere history that Paul gets to Rome and he gets shipwrecked on the way. But to pause at, with every passage to, to see the phrases and the words and apply them and see, I've been on that boat. Maybe I still am. And we've had a prophet that's already warned us about all of these things. And why didn't I listen? In verse 21, after long abstinence, this is Paul biding his tongue, forbearing to say, I told you so. But now he can't hold it. After long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete. Again, I'm not trying to rub salt into the wound, but I told you this from the very beginning. I have told you this before, to borrow the Savior's language. And you didn't hearken. Why didn't you listen? And now it's on you to have gained this harm and loss. You got exactly what you asked for, exactly what I warned you about. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I told you so, and then every man for himself. He's not jumping in the lifeboat and saying, I'm the only one that deserves it. No. Like a Moses willing to still suffer with the people, like a Nephi pleading for Laman and Lemuel to stay with the rest of the family, like a Levi Savage telling the handcart pioneers, then I'll stay and suffer right alongside you. What does Paul say? Now I exhort you to be of good cheer. For there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. And I'm sure they would have preferred not to have those last four words, but, oh, you mean the ship is going to be sunk? Yes. That is unsalvageable. You were using it to go in the wrong direction, so we're just going <laughs> to cut bait. We're just going to end the connection with the whole thing, and we're going to have to find some new way of getting to where we need to go. The old way is not working. So, yes, the ship will be destroyed. But that, that's just a temporal thing. 
sometimes we are afraid to repent because of the things we stand to lose. Not realizing that what we stand to lose if we don't repent is worth infinitely more. So let the temporal thing go. Get rid of whatever you paid for those negative influences. Cut off, and sometimes it'll even require you severing old relationships, friendships. The prodigal son lost all the so-called friends he'd made there in the far country. All those books of the curious arts, <laughs> worth 50,000 pieces of silver, they let those go too. Forget the ship, who cares? Spiritually speaking, I can survive this. Repentance assures us of that. If we'll start listening to the prophet, if we'll start hearkening to their words, if we'll begin the change, then who cares about the ship? You will survive the experience. And that's what Paul is promising. But how does he know? Well, how did he know that it wasn't wise to to keep sailing. And how does he know that we're going to survive? Verse 23, he tells them, For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. This angel and I <laughs> work for the same master. And this angel reassured me, saying, Fear not, Paul. Thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me, howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. So yeah, we're going to, oh, we're going to crash land. We are going to barely survive this experience, but we will survive it. God himself promised me that. And not only did he promise me, he promised you through me. That's a really interesting phrase. God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. It's almost this package deal that God holds on to his prophets. I've got the prophets back because the prophets got my back. Uh, I will not leave you comfortless. I will be there with you every step of the way. Paul has received that kind of reassurance from the Lord multiple times through his missions. And he knows he's got to get to, to, to Rome. He knows that he has to be there. So we know he's going to get there. And so I know I'm going to survive this shipwreck somehow. This storm will not drag me down. But again, he's not jumping in the lifeboat with an every man for himself kind of, a, kind of an approach. What about the people? What about everyone else here? Both fellow prisoners because there's some others going to Rome that are guilty, as well as my captors, I care about them too. This is like him with the jailer back during that earthquake. I don't want him to take his own life. I don't want these to lose their own life. And it's amazing to me that the Lord reassures the prophet by saying, if they'll trust in you, then that's the next best thing to trusting in me. And as long as they're with you, then, you're, then they're with me, and I'll save you all. It makes me want to be a follower of prophets and apostles of God. It makes me want to stay with them. So the, the same Lord who looks after them will look after me. And there's even this sense in Paul's language, 
I absolutely, my favorite line in all of chapter 27 is what he says to the, to the crowds crowding about him with fear in their eyes and, and wind blowing their hair about and everything drenched under the, the water of these, the waves and the splash and the storm. And this is an intense moment. And you picture Paul yelling out over the sounds of the, of the surf and the, and the storm, sirs. Be of good cheer, for I believe God. You see what he didn't say? You believe God, and you need to hold on to that and trust in him. No, it's just trust in me, and I trust in God. And my connection to God will be enough for you, as long as you're with me. I'm not asking you to believe. I'm asking you to trust in my belief. That, there's something profound there. It makes me wonder, is it enough? Well, actually, I know it is enough. Uh, this is Doctrine and Covenants 46. One gift of the Spirit is to know that it's all true, but another gift is to believe on their words. It's like, I don't know for myself, but if you know, then I'll hold on to you, and I trust that you're holding on to God. This is what... Elder Holland has said before, if you're struggling in your faith, then please hold on to mine. Lean on my testimony for a while until you get your own again. That was kind of him. That's him saying to us, be of good cheer for I believe God. And I wonder for all of us who are worrying about loved ones who have left the faith, wayward children, prodigal sons and daughters, or husbands and wives or parents. We all seem to know somebody who's tossed in a storm at sea. And we just want them to believe. But until that moment, our belief might be enough. To the point that not only can we try to cheer them up, but we can cheer up ourselves. Because I believe in a God who I serve, whose I am. And he will care not only for me, but he'll care for the people I care about. I've said to people before that as long as you hold to the iron rod firmly with one hand, then you can hold to others compassionately with the other. And as long as you don't get pulled apart... And as long as you don't let go of either one, then that, way, that wayward saint, that struggling soul, will never be too far away from the path that leads to the tree of life. Hold on. But especially hold on to your faith. As long as I believe, then those that I love aren't too far from belief. And maybe they will trust in my trust and have faith in my faith until they can gain faith of their own. This is a profound moment and I think we need to settle it into our hearts and inscribe it on the fleshy tables of our souls that the world can be of good cheer because we believe. From there, where does the journey take us? Verse 27. When the fourteenth night was come. 
But Paul, didn't you promise it was going to get better, that we were going to be okay? Well, yeah. It's been two weeks now. I know. Wait. Sometimes the promise is slow in coming, but it always comes. I do wonder, though, are they running out of rations? Do they, are they worrying about how long this is going to go? Do they still trust Paul? And does Paul still trust God? Well, we know the answer to that question. Anyway, after these 14, the 14th night has come and gone, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight, so here's our moment of greatest darkness, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. They couldn't even see it. Remember, they hadn't seen sun and stars in days. But they're getting a sense, I wonder if we're getting close to some country. Could they hear something, the sound of the crash on the, on the rocks? I don't know. But as they're wondering this, they sounded. They tried to get a sense of how deep the water is. They found it 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it 15 fathoms. Okay, so the water is getting shallower. We are getting closer and closer to land. Now, is this going to be quicksands? Is this a sandbar? Is this going to be crashed up against the rocks? Are we approaching our death or our deliverance? I don't know. But Paul believes, and I'll trust in him. Now, fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks. So that is a concern. They cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. Have you ever had such a dark night that you just wished for the day? Have you ever tried as hard as you can to stop where you're going and you just hope that there you have enough anchors out there to keep you from crashing against the, the rocks of consequence? This is an intense moment in darkness, but praying for the light to come. Verse 30, and as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship. So these are not the passengers. This is the crew. These are people who know the ship and the sea and the storm better than anyone. This is like Peter and James and John on their own boat with Jesus saying, Carest thou not that we perish? And they're the ones freaking out, thinking they're going to die. These shipmen, we did the sounding. It's getting shallower. We're about to crash against the rocks. We, it's every man for himself, not the captain going down to the ship anymore. Forget that. The shipmen were about to flee out of the ship when they had let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship. Now stop there. Think what they're doing. They're getting into the lifeboat and trying not to alarm the rest of the passengers. They're pretending to be going to the bow to be able to let down some more anchors. You remember the four they already let out? Those were from the stern, the back of the boat. So it's like, don't worry, we, we still trust Paul. You should too. We're just going to get in this lifeboat. But it's not really a lifeboat here. It's just a, a chance for us to be able to move forward toward the, the bow of the boat where we're going to cast out some additional anchors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we're doing. There, those, when it says under color as though, that just means they're faking it. They're pretending to be, we're doing something to help save us all. When really what they're doing is trying to save themselves. At the expense of everyone still on the ship. Well, Paul sees through that. And notice what he says. He said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. And fully trusting Paul's warning, then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. Now, this is a bold moment. Can you picture it in your mind? 
the sailors are ready to set sail themselves, to just cut and run. And Paul sees it, knows it, and tells the soldiers, the centurion and others, if these guys leave, we're all going to die. We are all in this thing together. And we will, we will live or die all as one. Now, the soldiers and centurion by now fully trust Paul to the point, and plus, it's like, what, you're going you're gonna to go leave? Forget that. We really are all in this thing together. So they cut the ropes that connect the lifeboat, and the lifeboat floats away. There's no other option. We're sticking together, and we're staying on this boat. Now, with that in mind, again, hold to the analogy we've been trying to develop. The symbolism here of following prophets and apostles. If Paul says, stay on the boat, that's what we do. There was actually a talk from Elder Holland given years ago called Abide With Me. All those beautiful verses from John 15 about the true vine and staying connected to him. Well, Elder Holland shifts the metaphor from John 15 to what we now see as Acts 27 because he talks about a ship. He calls it the good ship Zion. And you better believe that the apostles and prophets are there at the helm. Well, actually, the Lord's at the helm. <laughs> but these are the sailors aboard. Here we are, the passengers, but this is what Elder Holland said about it. When we join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we board the good ship Zion and sail with her wherever she goes until she comes into that millennial port. We stay in the boat, he said. Through squalls and stills, through storms and sunburns, because that is the only way to the promised land. My friends, do you remember when Cortez came to the New World and many of his men still had one foot back in the Old World and didn't want to fully commend themselves to this new life because they, they missed the old? It was more commodious to winter in, it was more comfortable and convenient. And so what did Cortez do? He destroyed his ships. And all of a sudden, the men were highly motivated to make the new world work. That's what Paul's demanding here. And that's what the soldiers are ensuring here. No more lifeboats. There's no other option. We will stay in the good ship and go wherever it takes us. Do we have the same level of belief? Do we trust in the Lord and his servants? Or do we at least trust in their trust? They believe we can be of good cheer. So verse 33, While the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. I'm trying to keep you alive here, okay? And I don't know, however much longer we have to stay, it's not going to be long. We can start eating again. We don't have to ration the food. So eat up. For there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. So Paul is here leading by example. He's showing his own faith by his works. He's putting his money where his mouth is, or at least his food where his mouth is. <laughs> He's eating. 
breaking a fast that was kind of a forced fast because we don't have any idea if we'll ever get to land again. And if we're just stuck out here in a lifeboat or on a sinking ship, will we have food to survive until somebody finds us? And good luck anybody finding us because it's the winter and most people are smart enough not to sail. Well, Paul is telling them the famine is over. Here's the bread of life. Here's the meat, which is for him to do the will of his Father in heaven. Eat up, and he's eating himself. Now, verse 36, then were they all of good cheer. It's amazing what what a little food will do to you when you're hungry. They also took some meat, and we were in all in the ship, 203 score and 16 souls. Wow, 276 people. That's a lot of people, which means a lot of food. But they'd been storing it, stockpiling it, waiting, and now it's time to eat. Now, Eating it, though, suggests, I guess we must be close to deliverance. Otherwise, it doesn't do us much good to be eating the food that we should be rationing. Well, it's even beyond just the food they're eating. Notice what happens next. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship. Now, they'd already done that before. They cast out the tackling. They cast out anything that was unnecessary. But food was necessary. Not anymore, though. They lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. They trusted they wouldn't need it any longer. They trusted that God would provide. Oh, Paul's influence is bearing fruit. And sure enough, when it was day, so now we have light instead of darkness. Man, it's been a while since we've seen sun or stars. Now we finally see sun. The storm is over. But still, they knew not the land. But... That no longer mattered to them. At least there's land ahead. Oh, they were willing to move forward in faith. They're going to venture into the unknown. It's better than the storm at sea we've been on. So come what may, let's go to land. And as they're trying to find their way to some safe harbor, they discovered a certain creek with a shore into the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. Now, it's one thing to think of some deep river Uh, And if we can just steer in there, then we'll have something deep enough for the ship. That's not quite what they're seeing. Creek with a shore elsewhere is translated a bay with a beach. And if it's a beach, what they're looking, what they're hoping for is just to run aground, if that's possible. That's the phrase they use. If it were possible to thrust in the ship. It's not a matter of docking. It's a matter of crash landing on a sandy beach. So hopefully we can at least get off the boat and get on shore. If it's a deserted island, well, it's better than drowning at sea. We'll figure something out. I mean, Paul's with us, which means God is too. Now that's the plan, if we can get to that kind of a place. Then in verse 40, when they had taken up the anchors, and the Greek actually suggests that they cut the ropes and left the anchors in the sea. So it's not taking them up into the ship so we can use them again if we choose to. It's like, nope, we really are commending ourselves to God. So cut the ropes of the lifeboat. Already did that. Now cut the ropes to the anchors. Okay, here goes nothing. They committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoisted up the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. At least they hoped that's where the wind would blow them. I mean, these sailors now are leaving themselves totally at the mercy of the elements, or I should say, the God of the elements. They are commending their own lives to God. 
we're not even going to hold the rudder anymore. We loosed the rudder bands. We put the sail back up so that the master of storm and sea and wind and water can do whatever he wants with us. We hope that it's bringing us to some sandy shore, but we trust God come what may. Now, sure enough, falling into a place where two seas met, and some translations render that a sandbar or a shoal or a reef, they ran the ship aground, and the four parts stuck fast and remained unmovable. But the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. So they made it, but just barely. Uh, they're going to survive, but I hope you ran to the front of the ship believing where you were going, instead of hanging out the back, longing for the old world you left behind. Now, if you're all in on this, then come aground to the promised land. The good ship Zion got you there. And now that you're here, there's no need for it, which is fascinating if we want to push our analogy still further. The church is meant to be a ship. It's not meant to be our final destination. But it gets us there. Elder Maxwell and President Lee and President Ballard have all talked about the church as scaffolding. And when the scaffolding has served its purpose and built the actual building, then you can take the scaffolding down. We're still building the kingdom of God. We need the church to help us construct it. The day will come, Elder Maxwell said this beautifully, where the church will come down like so much scaffolding, leaving the eternal family, I would even say God's eternal family, in place. That's the superstructure we're, we're trying to edify. But in the meantime, thank heaven for the scaffolding. In the meantime, thank heaven for the boat. Stay on board. <laughs> will we make it? Yes. Will we barely make it? Sometimes I wonder. Uh, but even if the good ship Zion crash lands on the shores of the celestial kingdom, we barely made it to the millennium, but we're here. The Lord will be there with arms outstretched. I've been waiting for you. Now, what happens here? This four part of the ship there, unmovable, it's a great word. It sounds unshaken to me. It sounds immovable. I'm here on, on land and I'll never leave it. Verse 42, the soldier's counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. Like, well, no, what, wait, what, seriously? You're like, they survived the, the storm. They survived the shipwreck. And now you're going to kill them just because they had some troubled past? No, don't worry about that the centurion says. It says that the centurion willing to save Paul. So again, here's someone who has risen in the estimation of his captor, another Joseph of Egypt figure. Willing to save Paul, the centurion kept the soldiers from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. We're right here. I mean, the front of the ship is already stuck into the, the sandbar itself. And the rest, some on boards, and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Just as Paul had promised. Now, we're still not in Rome. But we're getting closer. 
We'll see when we turn to chapter 28 what island they happened to crash land upon. But from there, it's just a matter of finding another ship and getting to our ultimate destination. There, Paul's rendezvous in Rome and his chance to bear witness before Caesar of all the things that he'd been bearing witness of all along. For that, we get to our final chapter this week. And our final chapter of the book of Acts. I'm sad to see it go, to be honest. I wish we had more stories. I wish there was an Acts of every apostle, each, an individ each individual one, and see all of Paul's missions and all of John's missions. James's was cut short. But what about Matthew? What about the good Judas? What about Bartholomew and Philip and everybody else? I, I wish we could learn more. Instead, we end here with Paul, and we don't even get to see the end of his story. Luke kind of leaves us with another cliffhanger of sorts, as if to suggest, oh, there's much more to this story. I can't keep writing, but you can keep pondering. In fact, you can keep more than reading, you can write more stories of your own. You can pick up where the apostles left off. Not just in Rome, but anywhere in the world you might be. Continue to preach their message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's going to do here for us. And then pass the baton to us. And so, Acts chapter 28, verse 1. When they were escaped, and escape's a good word. Uh, other translations say, when they were safely on shore... But if you've ever gotten out of addiction, if you've escaped the consequences of your sin, then escaped is the right word to use here. And sure enough, these people had all escaped. Then they knew that the island was called Melita. We call it Malta. And there it is, south of Italy. We're getting really close. And the barbarous people, and that sounds pretty harsh. The Greek word just means foreigners. They didn't speak Latin. They didn't speak Greek. But they did speak the language of human kindness. And so they do. The barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. It is winter, after all. And the storm hasn't completely abated. It's still raining, but these kind barbarians. And that's kind of funny to me anyway. It seems that Paul is safer among barbarians than he is among either Romans or Jews. No wonder he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. It's the outsiders that seem to be more open than the insiders are. And they're treating them kindly. Verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, he's just trying to help, and he's probably just as cold as everybody, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. This animal's cold-blooded, and it's cold, and it's rainy. Does it kind of stiffen, look like a snake, and it just got picked up with the rest of the bundle? And then as it's thrown into the fire, it, ooh, that, that'll get a cold-blooded animal more than warm-blooded ever could. And jumps out and, and sinks, its fang, sinks its fangs into Paul's hand. It fastened on his hand. It's not going anywhere. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. Ah, yeah, that's got to be it. I mean, by their fruits ye shall know them. And now we're seeing some fruits. He's being cursed by God. 
He got out of the storm, but he's not getting away from the serpent. There it is, still hanging from the man's hand. Well, what does Paul do? He shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while, can you picture this? They're just kind of sitting there, wise, eyes wide, like, okay, when's it going to happen? Well, okay, fine. He got rid of the serpent, but the venom's still in there. Surely he's going to start swelling up. And can you picture them staring at his hand or his forearm? Whatever hand got latched onto by this poisonous snake. They're looking at his legs to see if they're starting to get wobbly. Surely he's going he's to slump over any second. But when it doesn't happen, when they saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. <laughs> Sound a lot like Acts chapter 14. Remember that story? When there's all this persecution and you're evil and we're going to destroy you. And then Paul and Barnabas heal the lame man. And they're like, never mind. This is Jupiter and Mercurius. Come down among us. And Paul's like, make up your mind, people. Are you going to persecute or praise? <laughs> is it war or worship? Wh which one? Because we're, we're neither the, the devil nor the God you've made us out to be. We're somewhere in the middle. Just mere mortals but bearing witness of the God of all of us. Interesting that these barbarians would swing from one pole to the other, but no need. Paul's no God, but he knows God. And it's a God who had already promised his servants that no poisonous serpent would cause them harm. And Paul trusted in that. Be of good cheer, I believe. Then verse 7, In the same quarters or in that same area of the island, were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius. And possessions, others' translations render an estate that belonged to the island's chief official. Okay, So, nice place to live. It's where he's, the guy in charge stays. And this man, Publius, received us and lodged us three days courteously. So he's no barbarian himself. In fact, he's as nice as those nice barbarians were, courteously keeping them under his roof. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, which is dysentery. This is a pretty nasty disease, and he's really suffering. To whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also, which had diseases in the island, came and were healed. I mean, when it's the father of the, the guy in charge, yeah, the, the word's going to spread fast. And they all came running like, there's a, a guy here that can heal people? Well, I'm next in line. And notice what they do. Who also honored us with many honors, and when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. Now, did you catch the we and the us? I guess Luke's back. And he's there. For, was he a part of the ship? I don't know. But he's there along with them. And we see the we pronouns again. But they did us honor. They brought us everything we needed for our next leg of the journey. And that seems fitting. It, there's, a, there's a blessing of each other that's going on here. Publius was kind to Paul. And... And covered him with his own roof. Paul could, was then kind to Publius's father. And covered him with a laying on of hands. And healed him. The people catch wind. And they come running. And Paul blesses and heals them. 
And in return, they bless and provide for Paul. I'm always amazed at how much mileage God can get out of miracles. And it blesses both parties, both the giver and the receiver, since God cares about them both. And so you had a shipwreck. You've you already tossed out your wheat and the tackling and everything else. How on earth are you going to get to Rome from here? Well, just serve others and they'll come back and serve you. You literally cast your bread upon the waters. <laughs> well, now it's returning unto you after many days. In fact, it wasn't even so many. Then verse 11. And after three months, and no, Paul is not stalling. He's not trying to avoid Rome. He's been trying to get there for years now. But after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. Oh, it wintered in the isle. Yeah, those people were smart enough not to sail <laughs> during the winter. And I guess they had a place that was commodious to winter in, for them at least, their own form of fair havens. And so here... A ship's about to leave. It took three months for the winter to pass. And now Paul, chomping at the bit, is able to move forward. By the way, when it says whose sign was Castor and Pollux, those are the twin half-brothers in Greek and Roman mythology. We usually refer to them as Gemini. But those are the patron gods of sailors, which I think is interesting that this ship, dedicated to the patron god of, of sailors, is now ready to set sail with someone who knows the real patron saint of every sailor and everyone else? It's not Castor. It's not Pollux. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe I can introduce you to him on the way. But as they're going, they landed at Syracuse, and we tarried there three days. And from thence, we fetched a compass, or went around, and came to Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Puteoli, where we found brethren, Wow, you found brethren here? I never even heard of this place. don't even know if I pronounced it right. But this place, there are brethren. There are Christians everywhere. The gospel really is spreading. Well, yeah, you think? <laughs> this stone was cut out of the mountains. It is rolling forth to fill the earth. And there, when we found the brethren, we were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. Oh, you're almost there, Paul. But can you wait a week and rest up? and receive some more refreshment from fellow saints. People that believe in you and might be a little surprised that you're planning on going all the way to Rome. I mean, we're pretty close, but we want to stay away from Caesar, if at all possible. It's, it's rough to be Christian here. Paul, doesn't, Paul cannot be moved, so he's moving forward. Sure enough, verse 15, From thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as API Forum and the three taverns. And those are miles and miles from Rome, but we're getting closer and closer. API Forum is kind of one checkpoint. Three taverns is another checkpoint. And everywhere they go, brethren have heard about it and they come to meet them. Again, saints, encouraging, blessing, so excited to have him come. In fact, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. So there we see that Paul is treated differently than other prisoners. And again, that's happened everywhere he's gone. Felix treated him not like any other prisoner. The centurion on the ship 
kind of let him do his own thing. Now, here in Rome, I mean, yeah, we'll keep a, a token soldier there. Uh, no, no longer needing a 470-man army to protect him. Just one guy to kind of keep watch, but yeah, let him dwell by himself. We won't throw him into a, a prison surrounded by other prisoners. We know this guy doesn't really deserve that. So let him live alone and have a prisoner there. And, yeah, live alone. He's never alone. You got brethren everywhere, and Paul thanks God for them. It helps him take courage. There's something about the fellowship of saints, or the fellowship of suffering, as Paul will later call it, that just binds you together. And as I've traveled to different places and met saints, I'm always amazed at their goodness. Whether it's been here in Utah, or recently in Idaho, or in California, or in Alaska or Montana or North Carolina, places I've been recently to share the gospel and try to encourage the saints. I'm always as encouraged by them as they could ever be by me. And it's an amazing thing to see just the goodness of God's people. Whether it's the island of Melita, whether it's the saints that live near Puteoli, or the three taverns. That'd be a rough place to live if it's known for its taverns. But hey, I'll live the gospel despite it. They're blessing Paul just like he's blessing them. Now, verse 17, it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. I want my own people to come and listen to me. And when they were come together, he said unto them, men and brethren, as he always addressed to them, my own people, my own family of the faith, now, to you men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, there's that collective pronoun, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, would have let me go because there was no cause of death in me. I did nothing against the Romans. I've done nothing against the Jews. So you chief of the Jews here in Italy, you brethren, I haven't gone against you or us. It's our fathers I've been holding on to. Okay? Now, when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar. Paul tells them. It's the only reason I'm here. There were other people of our people. Fellow Jews that spoke against me. And that's why I had to appeal to, to, to Caesar. Not that I had ought to accuse my nation of. So I wasn't going against my own people either. You see Paul here trying to stay on the Jews' good side? Maintaining his own innocence, as he should. I'm not here because I've done anything wrong in any direction. Not politically against Rome, not religiously against Judaism. Trust me on this. Now verse 20, For this cause therefore have I called for you, to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. You see there again Paul invoking hope. I am here because of hope, because I maintain my hope, because I've seen the fulfillment of all of my hope. In fact, all of our hopes, the hope of Israel. My friends, the Messiah has come. <laughs> oh, fathers, the promises made to thee, fathers, have been fulfilled. The Messiah has come. 
he was crucified because that was part of the plan. He conquered sin and death thereby, but he has risen from the grave. This is Paul teaching his first discussion as he has done so many times and in so many places before. And how will they react? They said unto him, We neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. So we haven't heard any evil reports about you. So don't worry. You don't have to defend yourself. As far as we know, there's nothing, no defense needed. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So these Jews at least have an open mind. But, oh, there's some need for disabusing the public mind. Because Christianity is well known. This sect of the Nazarenes, whatever they're, they're called. Christians, is that what you guys go by now? I don't know. Uh, but we know enough about you to, know, to be a little concerned. Because everybody seems to speak not just about you, but against you. So, uh, I'm pulled in one direction by the, the reputation that your people hold, but not wanting to prejudice ourselves against you. That's why we came. After all, we haven't heard anything specific. There's no evidence against you that we've heard from anybody, even among our own people. And so, will you speak for yourself? We're curious to know what thou thinkest. And I'm always grateful for people that have an open mind to, to give us an open ear. I've heard some things about Latter-day Saints, but I'd like to know for myself. So let me talk to a Latter-day Saint directly. Christer Stendhal, the great bishop of Stockholm, Sweden, former dean of the Harvard Divinity School, and an amazing scholar of religion and interreligious relations, he said among his three rules for inter, or interfaith dialogue, one of them was, listen to believers, not detractors. If you want to hear about a faith, ask somebody who believes in it, not someone who never did or once did and no longer does. Okay? And these people are doing that, are paying that respect to Paul. And what is Paul going to say? Verse 23, when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging. And of course there's going to be many. If the world knows about Christianity, if they're spoken against everywhere, then of course there's going to be a lot of curious onlookers. Wait, wait, we got a Christian here among us? Seriously? Well, we've got to hear what, he's going to, what he has to say. And believe me, Paul has plenty to say. <laughs> Here's a summary of it. To whom he expounded and testified, and those are two wonderful verbs, sometimes we expound without testifying, and sometimes we testify without expounding, we've got to do both. We need to explain what we believe, and then we need to let people know that we do, in fact, believe it. Okay? So he does both. And what does he expound and testify of? First, the kingdom of God. Second, persuading them concerning Jesus. And how does he do it? Both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. And how long does he do it? From morning till evening. And how do they react to it? Some believed the things which were spoken and some believed not. That's a pretty quick summary of a mission, but it describes it well. Here he is teaching and testifying about the kingdom of God. It's here. It's among us. It's within us. 
And they're like, what? What are you talking about? The Hebrew Bible keeps telling us, promising us of a, mess a messianic age. And we're still under the Roman thumb. Believe us, we're here in Rome. Oh, no. Jesus came and brought the kingdom with him. I know what you're, what you're thinking. So many people assumed the same thing. Go back and reread John chapter 6 and the bread of life discourse. And I'm not that kind of Messiah. But don't leave me as a result. I'm here to conquer the things that, that no one can overcome. Believe me, the Roman Empire, as mighty and immovable as it seems, will come and go. But the kingdom of Christ is here to stay. He's brought the kingdom and it's changed everything. Let me tell you more about this Jesus. In fact, more than tell, let me persuade you. And I'll go back to our shared source of authority. Remember in Mars Hill, I'll quote Greek and Roman poets and philosophers. Here among the Jews, even in Rome, it's the Bible that you hold to. And so I hold to it too. And I'm a Pharisee, so I know my stuff. I learned from Gamaliel himself. So sit down and let me tell all of you Apollos's the rest of the story. Because all you've got is part. I want you to rejoice in full. And so he teaches them all of these things. Morning till night, some believe, some don't. And that's the way it's always going to be. I hope they don't decide in advance to be an unbeliever. Even more, I hope we don't decide in advance to leave them in their unbelief. So Paul preaches. Verse 25, we then see where the diverging path will lead the mixed multitude. Remember, some believed, some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that Paul had spoken one word, so before you leave, you believers and unbelievers, I just have one last thing to say. What, just one word. And it's going to come from one of the prophets, and you'll know very well of whom I speak. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers. So he's quoting Isaiah here. In fact, it's from chapter 6. And this is what the Spirit said to Isaiah. Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, fat, that is, so deeply buried underneath this unfeeling layer that God cannot push his hand through to inscribe upon our fleshy tables. No, our heart is grossly fattened, and their ears are dull of hearing. And their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. I mean, heaven forbid any of those things occur. I certainly wouldn't want to be healed by God, because that means I'm admitting that I had something wrong with me. I certainly don't want to be converted. That means I required a change. So no, 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 no. While you're crying repentance, please allow me to plug my ears so I don't hear you. And hold up my heart so that you can't penetrate and touch it. Close my eyes so I can't see. Oh, it's blindness that Paul has been battling this entire time. He knows what blindness feels like. But he also knows what it's like to see the light of the Lord. 
I love that Paul is quoting Isaiah 6 here. As a mixed multitude is leaving the house where he's staying. Self-selecting, which path will I follow? Will I be one with eyes to see and ears to hear and heart to feel? Or will I remain willfully blind and deaf and unfeeling? The choice is theirs. And the choice is ours. Which way will we go? Now, I know I said I'd only give you one more word, and Isaiah 6 had a lot more words than one. But let me just tack on one additional one. Verse 28. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles. So that's the first thing to know. You Jews that are about to walk away from me one last time. God is turning away from you as well. And the salvation that he promised our fathers and has promised again to us, he's repackaging to send to a Gentile audience and not just to send it to them, but for them to receive it. Because that's the other thing I know. Be it known that salvation is sent to the Gentiles, but also be it known that they will hear it. They have better eyesight than you do. They can hear more clearly than you. Their hearts are more opened You circumcised your skin, but they circumcised their hearts. And they are open to be touched by the Spirit of God. They will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. Well, at least their reasoning, instead of revolting, which is what their countrymen always seem to do elsewhere. As soon as they hear some good word about Gentiles, They're going to push Jesus off the cliff in Nazareth. They're going to tear Paul limb from limb in Jerusalem. Here, we're not immediately flying toward physical violence. But man, you've given us something to think about. We came to ask you what you thought. Well, we left with a lot of food for thought for ourselves. Will I be a believing Jew? Or will I sit back and watch God, the God of Israel, turn toward the Gentiles because I wouldn't turn toward him? Yeah, something to think about. And not just for them, for us all. Is this my chance to to change? Have I been in the presence of a prophet? Have my eyes been opened And will I keep them open to be able to follow the way and the truth and the life which is in Christ? I love what Paul is leaving them with. And as they walk away, hmm, Isaiah ringing in their ears, Paul ringing in their ears, hopefully the Spirit ringing in in their souls. Men and brethren, what shall I do? A big choice awaits me. As we approach the end of the book of Acts then, verse 30 and 31, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house. This is another entire mission. I spent two whole years in Puerto Rico, but he spent years on his first mission and years on his second and years on his third and then years stuck in Caesarea and now years stuck in Rome. But this is a missionary under house arrest. And many recent missionaries know exactly what that feels like as you serve during COVID. 
and in quarantine and you couldn't go out and tract or knock doors or street contact or visit people in, the, in their homes. Well, did that stop the work of God from progressing? No unhallowed hand can do that, let alone a virus. So what does Paul do in this hired house? Well, he received all that came in unto him. <laughs> I can't come to them, but they can come to me, and they are. Anyone who comes, he receives. And what does he do once they've come? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he taught. And how did he teach? We should know by now. This is Paul we're talking about. With all confidence, no man forbidding him. Sound like Paul? I would think so. All confidence. Another way to say that is all faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he had come to know years ago on the road to Damascus. He'd been on many roads ever since, but it was the road that led him back to Jesus that he was always pursuing. No matter where it took him, he couldn't be moved away from that mission. And he served with all his heart and might and mind and strength until he had nothing left to give. This is where the book of Acts ends, and yet this is not where Paul's story ends. Personally, I'm thrilled that we get to study so many of his words from now on. And what he wrote to the Romans, and what he wrote to the Corinthians, what he wrote to the Galatians, and everyone else. There is deep doctrine. There is powerful theology. What he teaches, I hope, I hope you'll stick with me. Because what we're about to do is change gears and move away from history into theology. We're shifting from the church history to the Doctrine and Covenants in a way. We are going to try really hard the next few months to wrap our head around what, what Paul taught. And he's a genius, so we're going to have to stretch ourselves to try to understand what he's trying to say. But it's worth the effort, believe me. Here, with all confidence, no one forbidding him, because nobody can stop him, he's going to preach and teach. And we'll get the chance to be his students from this point forward. There's actually a passage in one of the letters of Timothy that describes what he's doing here in Rome to a T. This is 2 Timothy 2 verse 9. Paul says, Wherein I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. <laughs> this is Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. But he's writing letters to the saints that end up being canonized scripture themselves. Revelation from the Lord to him and to us all. Joseph was bound, but the word of God was not. Here in Rome, Paul was bound, but the word of God was not. Because you just can't stop it. You can't forbid it. It will go forth nobly, boldly, confidently, right? And independent. And it sounded in our ears leaving us with the choice to make of what we will do about it. Can you picture yourself there in Paul's house in Rome, surrounded by a crowd that's crowded in because they want to hear him too, but somehow the way Paul preaches, it feels like it's just you and he alone in a room, and he's bearing witness. He's expounding, he's testifying, he's teaching of the kingdom, and he's teaching of the king of that kingdom.
namely Jesus Christ. He's helping us understand from scripture and from poetry and from life experience, telling stories and teaching doctrine and helping us come to know for ourselves the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is my prayer that we will accept his message, that we'll stay on board the Good Ship Zion, that we'll believe in his belief and trust in his trust and have faith in his faith. Paul will go to the grave with those kinds of words on his lips. Though the Bible does not tell us of his eventual martyrdom, tradition explains that he was most likely killed during the anti-Christian persecution of Emperor Nero, somewhere around 62, 63, 64 AD. That he bore witness until his final breath and remained immovable and unshaken throughout it all. Again, as he said to Timothy, from this <laughs> house imprisonment, and as he says to us all, words that hopefully we will be able to echo. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. 